Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And on this episode, you better pray till you sweat, because it's SST 264, The Flesh Eaters Prehistoric Fits Volume 2. Um, we always love having the Flesh Eaters on the show. Brant's uh, a super fan, and uh, I'm sure he's going to spiel it for us on this episode. Give us a bit of Flesh Eaters and Chris D. Can't wait to hear that. Yeah. But also, Brant, we've got an amazing, amazing special guest. Yeah, actually, the real super fan, Byron Coley, is on the show. Yeah. Awesome to have Byron on. I was, I was thinking probably one of the people I've read the most in my years um and i mean years in terms of like decades yeah whether it's uh, music reviews articles liner notes just an honor to have byron on yeah he doesn't do these so we're we're super fortunate to have him yeah for sure yeah. before we get into this awesome record brent why don't you hit us with some spiels okay i have the k section ryan i'm on the <laughs> Oh my God. You better tell people what this is. Do you think I need to? Oh, for sure, man. Because it's been, <laughs> because it's been six months since your last letter. I don't know about that. <laughs> okay. Well, it's 10 bands or artists that start with the letter K. I'm just doing 10 bands alphabetically. Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, K pants, Ryan. Oh, nice. Charmless. CD only, 1994, on Grinning Idiot Records. Looks like a short-lived label. There's a Eugene, Oregon address on the CD. Someone for sure mentioned this band to us. I don't know where on one of our social media posts, or I'm sorry to whoever sent it. I couldn't find who, but uh, I believe it was likely when we were talking about all the bands from this region, like when maybe when we had Donna Dresch on the show. Mm. Uh, but I could be wrong. My memory is totally shot, Ryan, like, you know, hard drive full over here. It's, um, better th it's better than mine. Yeah. So if I'm recalling right, they were a specific recommend for you or the person who sent it to us yes. was like, Ryan, does Ryan know about K-Pants? So it yes, must yes. have been you that was spieling about it. Anyways. Uh, no, it was not. You, you sent me like a text of someone's social media reach out to you. And I was like, oh yeah, I know K-Pants. Okay. Yeah, I, I probably screen capped it and sent it to you. That's the that's the practice. Yep. Uh, anyways, whatever the circumstances of the recommend and whoever made it, this is killer. Uh, I didn't know K-Pants. Great riffy 90s punk indie rock. It totally sounds like 90s all ages shows to me. I was trying to find more info and I, I found this label Jealous Butcher, which I don't think was on my right radar looks like there's some cool stuff to check out on jealous butcher uh, in 2017 they released a previously unreleased k-pants album from 1995 called smile and nod accordingly which i'd love to hear but i'm not sure that'll happen because according to the jealous butcher website it's part of their 33 series as in 33 copies were pressed oh yeah okay ryan kittens oh. remember kittens Oh, I remember so hard. Do it. Bazooka and the Hustler, 1997. Uh, Canadian label Sonic Onion, uh, drummer David Kelly, RIP. Their best album, Ryan? I would agree, yep. yep. Uh, I've talked about them before. We've talked 
about them. Heavy Melvins-esque noise rock from Winnipeg, active in the 90s. You're more dialed in on like noise rock groups and blogs and, or whatever, Ryan. Do they get mentioned? Yeah, they come up every every once in a while as a long but not forgotten and highly revered. And, and people like to post them like, hey, do you guys remember Kittens? And yeah. then a bunch of guys will be like, oh, yeah, I remember Kittens. Hey, remind me again, what's the connection between Kittens and Ken Mode? Was it like their bass player, Jamil, who was like one of the founding members of Ken Mode or something like that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. There's that band Projector, too, that's associated with Kittens, but I'm not sure how. Mm. Different different style of music. I know I saw them a few times, but... They were so intense live. Kittens? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we, got to, we were fortunate enough to see them live a ton of times. Yeah. The riff from the track Great Dane on this record still gets me jacked like all these years later. Yeah, so good. If you're into like faster, but also low and heavy, like kind of fast Melvins, but with different vocal, like they've got their own take on it. Yeah. Um, and before anyone else was doing it. Yep. You got it. You got to go to Kittens. Kittens in shallow North Dakota were probably the two heaviest bands in Canada in the 90s. Yeah, that's probably pretty accurate. Mm -hmm. And they played together because they're on Ton. the same label. Yep. Tons. Tons. Okay, Ryan, The Killer Shrews. Self-titled album from 1993, their only release, Enemy Records, a New York label mainly known, at least to me, more for jazz, like of the experimental variety at least to me, uh, like Last Exit and Sonny Chirac albums. Bill Laswell was involved with the label at the start, like he was one of the founders of the label. Lots of stuff on the tree, Blind Idiot God, um, Universal Congress of, E Sharp, of course. This was a bit of a super group, I suppose. Gary Lucas of Beefheart's Magic Band and tons of other projects. All these guys are in a zillion, zillion projects. Uh, he's on guitar and vocals. Uh, Tony... Maimon of Frank oh, yeah. Frank Black's band, Pear Ubu, They Might Be Giants, dozens of bands on bass. Bob Mould. Yep, Bob Mould. Uh, Steve Goldring of The Mekons, Graham Parker and The Rumor, Gang of Four, many others on drums, and John Langford of The Mekons, Waco Brothers, and a zillion other bands on guitar and vocals. Uh, John handles most of the vocals with the Killer Shrews. It's a bit arty, but also pretty straightforward and rockin'. I would say it's not a far cry from the Mekons, actually. Uh, Barbara Manning of 28th Day and many other bands and solo projects does some backing vocals, verging on duets with John, actually, mm. and they sound great together. That's a good one, Ryan. Uh, King Crimson, Absent Lovers, live in Montreal, 1984. Ooh, that'd be cool. Released in 1998 on Fripp's own label, Discipline Global. There's obviously a boatload of King Crimson live albums spanning yeah. every era and incarnation. These recordings were taken from the final shows of the Fripp, Baloo, Bruford, Levin lineup, which might be my favorite era. Uh, if really? Not yours? Oh, I mean, I like all eras, but it's interesting to hear that as a favorite era. It's often a bit too 80s for people, mm. but I'm, I'm with you, man. Yeah. It, that doesn't bother me. Uh, I mean, other than like, I'm not super into Adrian Ballou's like uh, Don Johnson t suit, but <laughs> his outfit. Yeah, yeah. Well, he even wore those with Zappa too. Like yeah. that's that's just his style, you know. Yeah. 
If you're looking for a primer on the Discipline Beat Three of a Perfect Pair era, this would be a good one to start with. Mm. Melodic but proggy, insane musicianship. Of course, they were definitely incorporating some post-punk into their into their sound. Bruford just going off. He he had those Lin drums on his kit for this tour, and he's just like, it's just insane. Yeah, that's that'll be a good one. Okay, Kramer, The Secret Life of Comedy. Oh, nice. 1994, on the label he owned, Shimmy Disc. How about Shimmy Disc, Ryan? What if when we finished SST, we just went straight into Shimmy Disc? How about oh, that? Oh, dude, dude, there's tons of great stuff on Shimmy Disc. I, you know what? The other episode, the last episode, in fact, I did kind of a spiel on tribute to tributes, and some of our listeners on social media post out some of my misses, but how about the tribute to the Ruddles? On yeah. sh- on shimmy disc that comp Doss Commons a- on that one yeah that was yeah. a miss that's a great one but yeah shimmy disc great label yeah Kramer has tons of albums and collabs on shimmy disc always interesting this one is like psychedelic weird sometimes it actually sounds a little bit like T Rex I'm actually kind of surprised there isn't at least a book or a documentary on shimmy disc there's a real story there for sure there is uh, a minor revival as well I would say in terms of shimmy disc partnering relatively recently with joyful noise and a run of releases that kramer has been involved in or curated and perhaps getting a bit of their overdue due but definitely some great tunes on shimmy disc man like just mentioned shockabilly for example like there's just tons of great stuff bong water bong water tons Okay, Conjure Collective, and Conjure is spelled K-O-N-J-U-R. Blood in My Eye, A Soul Insurgent Guide, that's the name of the album. This came out a few years back on Astral Spirits, a super cool Texas label that builds builds itself as the new wave of heavy free jazz. Do yourself a favor and set aside an hour to take a tour on their band camp, Astral Spirits. Uh, Amazing cover art for the releases also, and so much cool stuff on there. This is the debut and only release so far from this Baltimore trio, released in 2022. It's a double album, synth, drums, and alto sax, and it's a wild ride in all the best ways. That sounds cool. Yep. All right, Klaus, or Klaus, I guess, Klaus Kruger Collection. This was released in 1989. It's basically his first two solo albums on one disc. Uh, which came out on Klaus Schultz's label, Innovative Communication. Um, He recorded these after he left Tangerine Dream. He was the drummer in the late 70s. Um, On here, it's all over the place, super arty and experimental, mainly electronics and and synthesizers, Uh, some cool early sampling, definitely from that Berlin school of post-Krautrock weirdness. We were talking about the underrated, or I was, early 80s era of Iggy's career last week when we were talking about Zombie Birdhouse. Klaus Klaus Kruger was the drummer on two of my favorite Iggy Pop solo albums, New Values and Soldier. And uh, unfortunately, he passed away in 2022. So, Okay, a few more here, Ryan. Khmer Rouge, London, 1981 to 86. Double CD from 2004 on the label Hip Priest. Uh, this is the only release on the label that isn't, as the label name suggests, a live fall album. All the, <laughs> yeah, it's raw pill esque post punk. Um, so after Nikki Sudden passed away, 
Uh, Troubadour released this previously unreleased collab between Nikki and this guy Phil Schoenfeld, Schoenfeld, uh, called Golden Vanity, and it just rules. I had never heard of Phil before, and I dove in and tracked down a number of, of his great albums under the Phil Schoenfeld and Southern Cross name, uh, like an album called Dead Flowers from Alice, uh, which is kind of like, uh, it's just like straight up rock, but it's very dark. Anyways, he's got tons of cool albums under his own name and with his band Fatal Shore, um, which is kind of like a Beasts of Bourbon, Nick Cave kind of thing. Ooh, that sounds good. Yeah. This is one of his first bands, this Khmer Rouge. Uh, when he moved to New York from the UK, get into some Phil Schoenfeld. His yeah, excellent that... album with, with Nicky is a, a great place to start. That does sound good. Yep. Callus. K-A-L-A-S, self-titled 2006 TP Records. Although they kind of rejected being labeled as a supergroup, these guys were a bunch of roommates of Matt Pikes, who was already off and running with High and Fire when they made this album. They started out calling themselves Scum Angel, and they recorded a demo you can find pretty easily online. Uh, and then they changed their name to Callus, recorded this fantastic stoner rock album, played a handful of shows, and split up. Riffs galore and Matt's vocals are just so killer as always wow why change your name from scum angel <laughs> there must have been a bunch of other scum angels <laughs> maybe there was yeah yeah okay ryan here's a recommend but it's not for you <laughs> still not getting old <laughs> yeah killer dwarfs dirty weapons 1990 on epic the pride of oshawa ontario <laughs> <laughs> right up there with kittens and uh, shallow North Dakota for heaviest band in Canada. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah. I was obsessed with them as a preteen after seeing their hilarious vid video for Stand Tall on Good Rockin' Tonight. Mm, a, vi nice. a video show up here in Canada, Ryan, hosted by. Oh, man. I can't remember the name. I know Dan Gallagher did it eventually, but who are you going to reference? TDM, man. Who's that? Ter oh, Terry David Mulligan did Good Rockin' Tonight? You better believe. Oh, okay. That was it Was it the video show late at night on CBC? Is that the one you mean? Yeah, it was on Friday nights. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, and they played Stand Tall on there where they make make their record themselves. <laughs> I don't remember Like they have that. a pressing plant in their basement and then at the end they put it in a microwave to like master it, I guess. <laughs> I've, I've never seen it, but I will as soon as we're done recording. Oh yeah, it blew my 12-year-old mind, man. I've had a soft spot for this band ever since then. I even got to see them around this time, like when this album came out. Russ Graham, their singer, was like doing handstands on the bar and stuff like that. Jeez. It was amazing. Unfortunately for them, this album came out in 1990, right around the time 80s hard rock, not hair metal, Ryan, um, was, oh. was you know going out of fashion. The Dwarfs were, were also more akin to like the, you know, a new Wapham band in my view, anyways. For me, their albums hold up, especially this one, but the three before it, Self-Titled, Stand Tall, and Big Deal, and the one after it, Method to Madness, are all bitchin' hard rock albums. Wow. Give it up you for the Killer Dwarfs. You still have them all on cassette too, don't you? Yeah, I have a few of them, yeah. 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 <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> That's it for me, Ryan. What do you have? Okay, well, I'm going to read the news, but first some props to you. You mentioned a couple of recommends out of Thirst's new book. You re-recommended The Hollow Men to me. I actually forgot that I knew about them, but 
I skimmed past them throughout the years, but I revisited them and yeah, good recommend. Check out the Hollow Men. I'm digging them. But a brand new one and a great recommend from you that I skimmed past in Thirst's book was Viv a Cauldron. Yeah. That that's a good band too. So good good recommends. Full street cred for you on that one. Well, for Thurston, I guess. Thirst. Yeah, Thirst. So the news. I've got books and tunes, some on the tree here, the SS tree. First, a book, though, this is going to be a good read. Mia Zapata and the Gits, a true story of art, rock, and revolution. This is out on Feral House, 300 pages. Steve Moriarty is the author. This will accompany the uh, documentary on the Gits. It's a tragic story about an excellent band. All of our listeners probably know the story of Mia Zapata, but every time... I think of Mia, I think of the first time that I went to the the theater at the university when I was a kid. I was probably still in high school at that time, but uh, the, the theater kind of had underground films and cheap films at the university, and that's where I saw the movie Hype, and when I saw the footage of the Gits, I was hooked for life, oh, yeah, and, yeah. and uh, this will be a great read. Tragic story. But uh, every excuse to celebrate Mia and the Gits, I'm in. Yeah, I didn't know about that. Um, I thought there already was a Gits documentary. There is. This is a book. Oh, I thought, okay. I thought you made it sound like there was a new documentary coming out. No, no. There is that documentary that's a few years old, right? Yeah. And then this is kind of, uh, I'm sure there's some updates. Because they, after that documentary, I think, I can't recall. I don't think they had caught the killer during that documentary but they have they since have like in the last few years i thought so anyways i'll read this book and i'll be reminded of all of it and uh probably dig into the gits again great records over to some tunes jay robbins has got a new record coming out basilisk out in february on discord that's going to be awesome a follow-up to 2019's unbecoming i love everything jay and that will be a great record so consider that one in uh chunklet Industries, continuing its run of Manor Astro Man singles, has released three more Radio Session 7 Inches. Now they, they've released, I think, six singles in the last uh, 12 months or so. And these are all um, Radio Sessions, either Peel Sessions or other, other types of sessions, mostly in Europe, but they sound great. And it's Manor, like I saw Manor Astro Man a few years ago. They were great, but this is kind of like the Manor Astro Man when I got into them. Yeah. So this this stuff really is uh, just excellent for me. Out in March, Brent, Victim's Family and Nasal Rod. The first Victim's Family since Apocalicious from 2001. This is out on Nadine Records, and the album is called In the Modern Meat Space. You know that's going to be good. Yeah. Uh, I've talked about this band uh, plenty of times over the last few years. Savic, they've got a new record. Flavors of Paradise. It sounds great. Their lead-off single that you can check out on Bandcamp just sounds great. It's a follow-up to 2022's Human Ear, Human Delight record, uh, but this just sounds great. They keep on putting out great records. I mentioned before... Named, named after Spock's dad. No, man, that's Sarek. This is Savic. I mentioned at the end of last year that Arc Welder had an album coming out after 20 years or so, and it's out. Continue digital so far but hopefully there'll be a physical version of that but man i love arc welder 
Um, I've been checking that one out. It's great. Mixed by Jay Robbins, so you know it sounds great. Um, another band that I've uh, followed over the years has got a new record out, the band Whores. They've got a record out called War. Um, this is a noise rock band from Atlanta, GA. This record's out on The Ghost is Clear Records out in April. That's going to be good. Uh, Buttle Surfers are starting a run of reissues on Matador, which is a great home for Butthole Surfers. They're currently kicking off reissues for the Psychic Powerless, Rembrandt Pussy Horse, and PCPP EP records. All classics in my mind. With liner notes from? Byron Coley. There you go, man. Yeah. Okay, over to the SS Tree for a minute here, okay? Uh, new Dinosaur Jr. record coming out. The Black Session, live in Paris, 1993, Cherry Red Records. It's a 12-inch EP. That's going to be good. Um, and then also on the reissue front, on the SS Tree, finally, finally, the These Immortal Souls reissues have been announced. These are the first two albums by the band and a third album called Extra, huh. out on mute in April. Of course, that's the Get Lost, Don't Lie record, and I'm Never Gonna Die Again records, uh, Roland S. Howard, but also Friends of the Pods, Jennifer McGuckin and Harry Howard, mm -hmm. um, who we had on for some These Immortal Souls releases. Can't wait to check out those. Uh, love those records. I hope they uh, really do them justice with bonus tracks and all sorts of mixes and mastering. I'm totally in. Um, also on the SS tree, actually, it's kind of related to Dinosaur Jr. Actually, just discovered this record by an artist called Tiffany Anders. The album is called "Running from No Place to Nowhere," 1998 on Up Records. Have you ever heard of that, Tiffany Anders? No. So, Jay Maskis is on drums and backing vocals on some of the tracks. It's a cool record, and it sounds kind of Dinosaur Jr esque in places it's uh but it's tiffany's record and i think i think the connection is jay worked on the soundtrack for the movie gas food lodging in 1992 and that movie was directed by i think tiffany's mom allison anders hmm. so after jay worked on gas food lodging he must have struck up a connection with the family and eventually was recruited for this Tiffany Anders record, which is kind of cool. Unexpected to find that Jay was on that record. But as soon as I heard it, it was just obvious mm -hmm. that it was Jay on some of those tracks. And then real quick, Brent, I want to mention uh, one of my 2023 misses when we did our year-end roundup. Oh, yeah. This band Train Dodge put out a record, The Alley Parade. And I was turned on to this new release by looking at Conan Neutron's end-of-year roundup. This is out on Spartan Records. It's post-hardcore noise of the highest order from Oklahoma. Follow-up to 2016's Time Will Never Know Your Name. Uh, love this new Train Dodge record. Should have been on my 2023 roundup, but thanks to Conan, um, I'm in it now. And that's all I got. Awesome. Yeah, I'm working up a, a spiel about some stuff I missed, actually. A makeup session? Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. What do you think, man? Time to pray? Yeah. History lesson, part one. So, the Flesh Eaters. We've had them on only, I was surprised, we've had them on only once before on the show. But it feels like we've had the I Flesh know. Eaters on a ton of times. And it's because we've 
mentioned them a ton of times. There's so many relationships on the SS tree with the Flesh Eaters. We've also had, of course, Divine Horseman releases on uh, on the podcast, and it's really hard to talk about uh, Flesh Eaters and Chris without talking about Divine Horseman. But um, the the first release we had was SST 94, The Greatest Hits Destroyed by Fire Comp from 1987. And here we are, episode 264 with prehistoric fits. So it's been it's been a long stretch, actually. It felt like, you know, didn't we just do a Flesh Eaters release? But actually not. And this is really, you know, for for our listeners, just to remind you, this is really Chris D or Chris Desjardins' vehicle as a as a musician, um, as a singer, vocalist, uh, lyricist, until he started up the Divine Horseman. This band started in 1978 and has had a ton of different members, yeah. um, and we'll go through them as we talk through these releases. Yeah, so that release was a little different in in one way, a bit more crucial, in my opinion. It contained tracks from their first four albums, uh, just like this one does, um, basically covering the band's in- inception through to their first breakup when Chris formed uh, the Divine Horseman, but it also had several unreleased tracks and a track from uh, the American Youth Report compilation. This release, although cool to have and a fun listen, has no exclusive tracks, making it a little less essential than than the uh, first one. This is basically a sequel to that one. Yeah. We'll cover that a bit more uh, when we get to the tracks, uh, but I think for now I want to tee up our guest for this episode, Ryan. Do it. Byron Coley likely needs no introduction to anyone listening to our show, but here one comes anyways. He's, <laughs> <laughs> he's one of these guys that's just done an astounding, has just an astounding body of work that is just so daunting. I really had a difficult time prepping for this interview, to be honest. I, it's probably the interview I came the closest to backing out of. Really? Yeah, I just... Oh. Like where to begin with Byron? I was just, I don't I know. know. I was intimidated. He's, he's just everywhere in all of the music that we have loved for decades. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's hard not to do the Chris Farley show with someone like By- Byron. Yeah. Like, Remember that time you did the liner notes for our, <laughs> for Dinosaur Jr.? That, that was, was awesome. A, that was awesome. <laughs> yeah. He, he's primarily known for his writing as a music critic. Um, he wrote prominently for the legendary magazine Forced Exposure, also New York Rocker, Boston Rock, Take It, LA Weekly. He was the underground editor at Spin for several years. He's a poet and avant-garde artist. He's a label head, the record collector of all record collectors. Um, mm-hmm. He's also written extensively about the Flesh Eaters and Chris D's various musical projects. And uh, like I said off the top, he also rarely does interviews. So we're very fortunate and grateful to have him as our guest this week. Well, let's do it. Let's hear from Byron. All right. We're joined on the podcast today by Byron Coley. Byron, thanks for being on the show. Sure. My pleasure. Yeah. So you basically grew up in the New Jersey area. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, You know, in the, yeah, pretty much. Most of my childhood was spent around uh, northern New Jersey, about 40 miles out of Manhattan. When do you think you first realized that you connected with music more deeply than other kids your age? Oh, you know, very early. You know, I bought my first album in, I think, seven. So, like, not a kid's music. 
so I started, I was really into it, you know, always. And I started, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I was much more serious <laughs> about <laughs> records than most of my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was kind of a loner kid also. So it was like, you know, it was, it was something to do. This was like the days there weren't really record stores. Then you bought records at like electronics stores, <laughs> right? You know, like I'm talking like 60, 64, 63. So, you know, so it, it's always been a, a, a problem, you know, like a social problem of mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the time you were in high school, like where would you have been buying records? There must've been high uh, record stores by that point. Yeah. Well, I went away. I mean, yeah, there were, uh, I mean, there started being more record stores that were also like music stores in, in places like Jersey, there weren't really record stores per se until malls started opening. Right. So that's really like, you know, like 69 or, and there'd be chain stores in, you know, a mall. Uh, so, you know, that, that's, you know, apart from that, you'd have to go into, I'd have to go into New York city to buy stuff or you could buy stuff. A lot of department stores had big, uh, select, you know, record selections like Corvettes and yeah. like that. And there was, but there was like a Sam Goody's that was down in Paramus, which was actually where this guy, Glenn Jones, uh, who I later became a friend of mine worked. And, you know, um, so there, there were record stores around, uh, after, a, you know, really starting in the very, the very tail end of the sixties. And I went away to school though, boarding school in 69 and they had a radio station there and they had a little record store, record and bookstores, sort of a fundraising thing of that. So I started working at that You're place right. in 69. And then there were other, there was another record store in town that I could, you know, you could talk to these people about stuff. And if they, if they, if they sort of liked you, you could like hang out there. <laughs> I mean, it's so pathetic. Like hanging out at record stores was kind of my life. Right. Which about all that I really aspired to. Well, even 15 years later than that, I, I'm Canadian and we had Sam the Record Man. That was, uh, you know, a chain store. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, chain stores were, I mean, in the, in the major label era for major label records, chain stores were great because they'd sell them cheap and then they also would have cutouts and whatever else. You know, and it, it wasn't until, I mean, you couldn't find really private press stuff there or these like weird small label things weren't, didn't get into regular distribution chains, but you know, they were great. They were great sources for stuff. And there weren't really, there really were no used stores until the early seventies, at least that I knew of. Like, you know, the first time I think everyone was in was in Free Being on Second Avenue in New York. Um you know, they're collector stores. It right. wasn't a, like a collector store. It was like a place where people just dumped the records they didn't want, <laughs> which was revelatory. Yeah. What about um, reading about music or writing about it? How early on did that um, interest I, you? Well, you know, early. I mean, I, I would actually... Uh, my parents got me a typewriter for my ninth or 10th birthday, and I would type up... I would just like retype up stuff that I read about, <laughs> you know, read reviews in the New York Times yeah. or like, you know, club listings from the New York Times and stuff like that. I just type up for these little one sheets that I'd take into school, you know, right. and like pass, you know, I'd have, pass, you know, people would pass it around. Yeah. Like, oh, here's who's playing at the uh, Cafe Agogo, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, is like totally useless information, but it was like sort of interesting. To me. Right. So I would do that kind of stuff and, you know, whatever, uh, in terms of, I mean, there were freebies 
um, that were sponsored by radio stations that went around newspapers in the state. There was one called Go that was sort of different from, you know, I had friends who had uh, sisters who were really into like, you know, 16 magazine and, you know, there was a lot of fan type magazines that would occasionally have stuff that was interesting in them, but not enough to actually buy them because you never wanted to get caught buying a record with, uh, you know, a magazine <laughs> with like, what a date with Davy Jones right. on yeah. the cover. So, you know, that was not. So I'd see those. Um, the first one I really saw that made any uh, impact on me was Crawdaddy, mm-hmm. which a friend of mine's older brother, you know, showed me. It must have been about, it was after that stopped being sa- saddle stapled. So it was one of the first one of the earliest printed ones. It wasn't, I don't think he was still, I don't think Williams was still worth more than, you know, so that, so I saw that and that was like really incredible. And so I'd go over to this guy's, when I, we were over at this guy, I was over at this guy's house a lot and I'd always try to, his brother was about four or five years older and uh, really was, uh, you know, had a lot of good information on stuff. Right. Um, and would sort of tolerate us enough to like, let us sit around and the records and look at his magazines. You know, that, that made a, uh, an impact and you know really the you know everybody had like you know when crawdaddy went to the newspaper format there was that period of like newspaper format stuff or crawdaddy and rock magazine and fusion and they were all in those changes they're all in that kind of zoo world you know, the same sort of format it was like very disposable um but you know when cream came along and when cream distribution i'd never seen it until you know maybe early 71 when it actually got on the newsstands on the East Coast. Mm. Prior to that, I don't think it had been particularly well distributed. And, uh, you know, the attitude in that was great. So, it, you yeah. know, it was just like a very fun thing to read. And, you know, you know, Robot Hall and Meltzer and Lester Bangs and, you know, all those guys just had, you wouldn't necessarily want to hear the records that they were writing about. <laughs> yeah. But the writing was great, you know. <laughs> it just was like, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Whereas, you know, you know, Rolling Stone was kind of uh you know i mean it was sort of it was interesting for the cultural stuff and it came out so it covered a lot of stuff but it was very dull Mm -hmm. um for the most part although you know that was one of the few places that sort of regularly reviewed uh you know records that weren't that were private press things right you had to order them direct and so i was always like totally into that whether it was like you know carla blaze escalator over the hill or you know like spider john kerner's you know, music is just a bunch or, you know, like whatever. Right. Anytime there was a record you could buy mail order for like two bucks or a buck 50 or whatever it was. I was just like, Oh, you know, yeah. I mean, I want to hear that if it can, you know, <laughs> I remember like when the hot poop record got reviewed, I think in fusion and it was like, Oh, this, I mean, I think maybe melt reviewed it. And I can't like, the, it said nothing about what the music sounded like, <laughs> but it was like, God, we really going to order a record called hot poop. Yeah. <laughs> kind of sells itself. So, right. I mean, it kind of does, yeah. you know, his description of it, it's like, oh, all their genitals, like, have been taken off the guys and put on the women and the women. It's just like, ah, oh, sounds great. Mm-hmm. You know, the record, you get the record and they're, you know, they're not necessarily the greatest records, but you're really happy to have them. And none of your friends have, have a clue what the hell they're about. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a win-win. Right. <laughs> uh, as far as your own writing later on, you know, when you really started getting into it, um, was it all music mm-hmm. or did you harbor dreams of, like, being a novelist? No, not at all. I just wanted to be, I mean, my, my interests were so small. I just wanted to be a, I wanted to be a rock writer and a DJ. That was it. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I mean, I went to college to do video art. 
So that gives you an idea of how aspirational it was. To like, is this to like get into the mainstream? Yeah. Was this Hampshire College? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what about poetry during this? At this point, did that come later, or were you interested in that as well? No, I didn't. I didn't really like poetry much, you know. And then I, uh, it's weird because uh, it just didn't. It didn't. It didn't really grab me very much. And then when I'd read stuff that I thought was sort of interesting, I'd find out all these other people who I thought were jerks were really into it. You know, like when I first ran into Bukowski, the people I knew who liked Bukowski at that point, this would have been in the, you know, the early seventies, mm-hmm. you know, they just all were like, they were such jerks <laughs> and they all, they all had this like super light. They wanted to be, they had a boho lifestyle thing. Yeah. They really wanted much as the poetry and that sort of put me off. So I never really, uh, paid all that much attention on really, you know, sort of later. I mean, I missed, you know, a lot of that stuff. I didn't really get into it somewhat until the eighties. Right. Um, you know, in the early eighties when, you know, weirdly it was when, you know, when I got Meltzer's like for his, uh, 17 insects can die in your heart. And, uh, you know, I actually went and bought it from him at a, a bookstore I used to work at in L.A. And uh, I just, like, I really tried to, after that point, I really tried to sort of figure it out. And from then on, then I sort of, like, you know, not that it was the greatest poetry ever, but I just really liked it. Mm-hmm. And then it led me to other stuff, looking for little, ma- like, into little magazines and sort of that whole, Great. the literary magazine stuff. And then, but I never wanted to really write poetry because people said, a couple people had told me you should never really write poetry until you're 40. <laughs> so I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so they were just like, you know, anything, everything, anything you do before that, you're going to just throw out. Right. So, so I just never really bothered around 40. Um, I was like, oh, okay. So I, then I just started, I mean, and then I started writing poetry and I would just do mostly like little one, you know, publish little pamphlets and stuff and mm-hmm. give them away. And people seemed to like it, so it was like that was all right. It was, and I sort of had enough. Uh, I had en- enough miles behind me at that point, so that it wasn't quite as juvenile as it would have been if I would have, you know. I mean, I wrote poetry when I, was, I had to in high school and stuff like that, and you know, sort of drug poetry and that kind of thing. But it was not, you know, a lot of poetry on like written on, you know, speed late at night, right? You know, about the crystals forming in the windows of my life. <laughs> you know, dark dorm room or what, you know, just <laughs> yeah. hog, you know, really pathetic stuff. Um, but yeah, so, you know, and then, you know, so I, you start figuring out some of that kind of stuff and it to like, there's, there's just tons of interesting information and really interesting people who were involved in that scene. I mean, it's all, I mean, it was all, when I was dealing with it, it was mostly historical, mm-hmm. um, you know, but I had always preferred reading prose to poetry before that. And then I, I really started getting into reading a lot of poetry. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, not, not metered poetry so much and not, no, no like formal. Right. Yeah. You know, not much in the way of formal poetry, more, you know, like post, uh, you know, post Whitman kind of right. stuff. Uh, when you went to Hampshire college, it must've been like a fairly new college by the, at the time you were there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was, uh, you know, I mean, I was, originally supposed to go there i ended up taking i got in and i ended up taking time off i'd gotten out of high school sort of early so people were sort of encouraging me to 
to like <laughs> mature. Right. <laughs> you know, like at least be old enough to get a driver's license or something, you know? Yeah. So it was like, so, so I, so yeah. Um, but yeah, when I got there, it was still, you know, it was its beginning class was still there and stuff. It had, uh, it had mellowed in the years, in the, the two years since I had been there though. And it kind of like, it, every year it would get a little bit squarer and right, squarer. Right. So. I think the the idea when it opened was it would was to be more of like a liberal liberal arts type of college. Yeah, I mean the original concept was sort of interesting. It was like it was it, there were four other colleges involved in it, and you'd be able to take classes at any of the five colleges. Oh, um, all of the lectures were going to the original idea when I went, all of the lectures were going to be videotaped. Hmm. Um, the entire school was wired in every dorm. You'd be able to watch your lectures from the dorms. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I mean, there were no, there were no required courses. There were no grades. There was no, there was no disciplinary policy. So it was pretty free form. I mean, you could do the whole thing without ever taking a class. I mean, that really appealed to me. And the class, I, the course I would take would be like, you know, recording performing arts workshop, right. liberation, California, which was about, uh, uh, the visionary architect, uh, Paolo Soleri, uh, and his arcologies mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, of course on kitsch, <laughs> Just, right. uh, you know, it was, it was that. And you know, it was very, a lot of the professors there were only a couple of years older than the students, but it was, it was interesting. It was interesting. At the time. Yep. Okay. And then you, at some point you move out to LA slash San Francisco. Well, I went to San Francisco. Uh, yeah. And I, I, uh, I got kicked out of Hampshire, and then I, uh, for being a negative influence on campus, <laughs> and uh, I ended up, I, I just drifted around. Really, uh, you know, I did, I, I did some other, uh, you know, I lived for a while doing working and stuff like that, and then I drifted out to San Francisco, sort of time. I didn't really, I didn't really have a place to live for a couple of years. And I'd move sort of between San Francisco, L.A., New York, and Boston, you know, take trains and butt back and forth or hitchhike. If people, would, if people wanted to do something, they'd, like, send me money, and I'd take a train back and drive cross-country with them, bus right. back, rather. Yep. Drive cross-country with them, whatever. So, but, but yeah, no, it was, it was in that period. And I'd, I'd, when I was in New York, I'd live at, at usually with Andy Schwartz, who uh, had a shotgun apartment on, on 10th or 11th Street on the east side. Mm-hmm. And he's the guy who would buy New York Rocker. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, but yeah, I was sort of, I drifted around, you know, I was, yeah, San Francisco, LA, Boston and New York, mostly in San Francisco. And then I moved back. Then I ended up in Ketchum, Idaho for a while. Oh, wow. And then I went back to San Francisco. And then in 80, I, my, uh, I had to move back to the East coast. Some people got, in t- my parents got in touch with me through some friends that, uh, you know, my dad was sick, so I had to go. I went and dealt with that mm-hmm. for a couple of years. I was back on art for a year. I was back in New York then, and living in the New York Rocker office. Then, in '81, when George Scott overdosed on heroin, I got—I was just like—I got so bummed out. I just—I moved up to Boston. I moved in with my girlfriend up in Boston. Yeah. In '80, and then in '81, she and I moved to Santa Monica. Yeah, is that when you would have yeah. got the the job at uh, Rhino? Yeah, yeah, that's when I yeah that's when I worked at the store. Yeah, was Fast Freddy working there when you worked there? 
No, this was before Fresh Freddy's time. Uh, who's working there? I mean, I took a, you know, Steve Wynn. Oh. Nels yeah. Klein. Um, this guy, uh, Otis, was a, uh, John Williams was a big R&B collector. You know, like John Brecco was like a jazz, you know. I mean, it was, it was, there were about 10 people who worked there, but the, the people that anybody would, you know, Steve, when Steve and uh, Nels, and actually Gilmore's brother, Michael Gilmore, mm. who was the, just was leaving then he was quitting his job to be the he was the music editor for the LA Times he'd okay. been the music editor for the LA Reader a week or before that were you carting your record collection around with you the this whole time when you're moving around no I got rid of it all when I left Massachusetts and then like when I moved in with my wife I could carry all the records and then because when I was in I started getting a bunch of other stuff then in Boston and that's I mean I but then I sold all my like rare 60s stuff for us to get the money to move to LA so when I got to LA I probably had I don't know maybe a hundred records or something mm -hmm. and what and, was uh, what was your gig at Rhino oh uh, I just a, you know I, I worked there part-time I was I had other jobs but I worked there part-time and it was like you know you did indie buying you know, buying, you know, like punk stuff. Everybody, everybody there would be a buyer for like a different type thing. And, uh, Steve had been, Steve had been doing the in, you know, like independent rock stuff. And then he quit to do dream, dream syndicate full time mm -hmm. in 83 or something, whatever. And then I was, so I was doing that, and, you know, it's basically that. I mean, everybody at Rhino needed to be able to do like all the stuff. There were only about 10 people, I think, who worked there. Right. So everybody would buy, but people would have different responsibilities in terms of ordering stuff like from different areas. And so, you know, I, I, did, I did that, but that was mostly for like, you know, punk or, or, you know, just kind of small label rock stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so really where I, I do a lot of stuff just like, um, like I was friends with Greg Shaw. Oh yeah. Yeah. And bomb had been closed up for a long time. And I'd go over to, I'd go over to bomb warehouse every week. We'd hang out and sort of shoot the, shoot the beans. And then, uh, He'd let me go in the back room, and I could buy all the singles I wanted for a quarter apiece. Wow. <laughs> so I'd go with a check from Rhino, and I'd just, like, buy, you know, I'd spend a couple hundred bucks every week right. on singles and bring it back to the store. And we'd put them out. Some would put out, you know, sort of collector's things. But a lot we'd just put out, paid a, you know, just as a dollar bin. So we'd have, like, a super hot, like, dollar bin of, like, you know, punk, you know, punk records that weren't around anymore. You know, or like, i get boxed stuff you know like the soft boy single or the first single or the first scientist single mm -hmm. or you know stuff like that yeah and uh and you know he just had i mean when he closed up they they weren't doing mail order then or anything so they had just like stopped doing stuff but everything was filed and it was just like you know tons of stuff to go through and uh, they just wouldn't let anybody in there right but uh i was working at that point i was doing a i, I my main reason for going to see greg every week was i'd been working on doing a complete index of Crawdaddy magazine. And I'd been working with Alan Betrock's collection. And then when I moved to LA, it was like, he's like, yeah, I get Greg's probably the best person to deal with for this stuff. Right. So I'd done some trading with Greg before that, but Alan gave me a letter of like introduction that I was like, cool to like, <laughs> he vouched for you, you know, handle, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, rare, yeah, you know, rare stuff. I'm not going to like you know, steal the stuff or like right. screw it up. So, right. so that's where I really started. I, I, so I just go over there every week and, and just do that stuff and then when he started letting me buy records that was especially good because because it meant we could keep a really like great you know i mean you could get a lot you could get a lot of actually at that time you could buy a lot of like rough trade 
distribution and small wonder both had like incredible like cutout lists you know you could just buy you could buy tons of records for you know a quarter to a dollar a piece it just hadn't sold it was so it was all the interesting stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh you know it was like it was it, once you'd got them into one place people would you know once they were out people would like to buy them now but like two years ago they didn't want to buy them right um and people weren't really collecting punk stuff at that point yet the way they were i mean the first guy to really get into that i think was this guy chuck warner uh from uh boston who'd done a, a, a done mailer for a long time under a variety of different things they originally done a lot of 60s stuff mm-hmm. but i'd talk to him and I'd be like you know all these punk singles are like you know there's a lot of them are super limited they've got picture sleeves they're like crazy records you know at some point somebody's gonna want these so I'd buy tons of them, and, but I would just trade. You know, nobody bought, nobody sold stuff that everybody just traded. You know, yeah. And the, a lot of the stuff had never really gotten distributed. So if you had West Coast singles, if you had access to West Coast singles, you know, I'd get be getting want lists from people when I was out there. You know, I, you know, or Tesco V or you know whoever like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. All they wanted, you know, Jimmy Johnson or Four Scorpions. It's like their list is like I need all the Danger House singles. You know, like Germ singles. You know, yeah. whatever. People wanted these like West Coast punk singles, crime singles, because they hadn't really gotten out of the out of out of the West Coast mm-hmm. very much, you yeah. know, a little bit. In your book, Say Laguerre, you you republish your first paid piece from the New York Rocker, nineteen seventy nine, about this these Devo tour diaries. We've talked to so oh, ma- right, <laughs> yeah, we've talked to so many SST artists on our show who were exposed to Devo early on, and cite them uh-huh. as like a major catalyst in their music, like their musical awakening. Mm-hmm. You say in it, um, the early version of the, the band, especially the sextet lineup, were quite magnificent, much more raw, crude, and punked out than they would later become. So I assume this was like what we hear on like the Hardcore Devo compilations? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that was like, a, you know, that that out of town, because Bob Three was only, the first time they came to New York was the only time he was with them. Mm. And they, and he was not really like playing by that point, but we'd heard, you know, I was, I'd gone to college with a guy who had worked at a record distributorship with uh, John Thompson, who ran Hideo's Discodrome, you know, Johnny Dromet, okay. who ran Drome Records and Hideo's Discodrome and all these other labels and managed, you know, lived with, you know, David Thomas and, you know, managed, you know, sort of Perubu at that time. And then man, I was also involved in managing Devo. And so he would get us, he would send us tapes of like Cleveland, like, you know, like Cleveland, but Ohio, yep. like weird, weirdo stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so you'd hear this stuff and it's just like, God, this sounds fucking insane. The mirrors you know? and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. 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 So, so, uh, so I'd heard, we'd, we'd all, you know, but then when Devo came along, they were just like, I mean, they were, they were very entertaining guys. And it was like, it was, I liked their whole multimedia approach and stuff like that it was like oh maybe this is this is where things are headed i don't know but you know it's like and also you know like what i can remember watt saying like you know like after devo were on uh saturday night live that was like the new thing that people would call you if yep. you looked weird yeah <laughs> instead of like hey punk yeah hey devo yeah. <laughs> it was true even in new york city you know i would get you know you would get yelled at from you know people coming over and call you know like walking around late at night if you looked weird but you know to call somebody devo is really good <laughs> could be worse it could be worse than getting called yeah, devo. yeah yeah 
No, they were. I mean, they were. They were a. a I thought they were a really great band. You know, I mean, I, at a certain point, I, I was less interested in their music, but but uh, they were really, uh, you know, it, super influential for a, the a period of time. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I think everybody really, you know, it was one of those bands that when they show up, like everybody who you who you respected was like kind of blown away by it. You know, it's just like one of those things. It was like the cramps. You know, they just they were they were not like anything else. And what they did, even if it wasn't your exact cup of tea, it was so different and so like cool that you'd be into it, even if it wasn't exactly what you were looking for musically. So, uh, was it through the store that Greg Ginn approached you about potentially working for SST? Uh, oh no! I mean, I had, I had. I'd met those guys when I was still in Boston mm. when they came because great. They wanted to st- when they came first time they came to Boston, they wanted to stay with me, but I didn't really have a good setup. And so I'd been in touch, you know, I'd been reviewing, you know, I, I you know, I, I, they'd been sending me stuff to review from back in the New York rocker days. And I was one of the few, you know, there weren't that many people in on the East coast who would review like, you know, quote unquote, hardcore, you know, sort of records. Yeah. And especially in a in a larger, larger magazine context, which New York Rocker got pretty good distribution. It was it was you know it was seen by a lot of people. So uh, so I'd been you know I mean he'd been sending me he'd been sending me promos from like the first uh, not the first I didn't, he didn't see any promo the first black black from the second record on. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we'd been in touch a little bit, and when I moved out to L.A. Uh, one of the first things I did was a, uh, uh, was I did a black flag piece for take it, which I was still mm-hmm. the managing editor for, which was a Boston magazine, Boston newspaper thing. Yep. And so I had them all over to the house and, uh, I don't think Henry had come to town yet, but you know, so it was just, so we were hanging out. We, I mean, I just knew those guys. And so we would sort of hang out and Greg was like, Oh, maybe we could do something. I was like, you know. I can't. He, he had asked me to uh, if I'd come and do publicity work, doing publicity for the label. Oh yeah. And I was like, I had just started writing for the LA Weekly. I just done my first thing for the LA Weekly, which I think was view of pagan icons. You know, I said, you know, I mean, I would do it, but if I do that, I can I can't write about SST records. Right. And he was like, why not? I was <laughs> like, I just couldn't. I mean, it would. I mean, it just would. I couldn't do it. Yeah. You know. Uh, people would just see it the wrong way, and the editors would, uh, you know, I, it would just, it would be a very bad idea. Conflict. I said, of you know, I can actually, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. like, you know, I can, it's, it's, I can write about your stuff a bunch, which I will do anyway. But if I go there, if I work for you, there's, I can't, you know, I can't really do it. So I would still go, you know, I would, I would, you know, I would go see Black Flag all the time, you know, like, and I'd give me passes for shows and all that stuff. And so I'd do all that, and then. Uh, you know, uh, Henry came to town and, but really it was when, uh, when Carducci came down, um, from the Northwest, he was like, we really need somebody to do, I don't know, whatever some, it was like, it's sort of tracking radio station stuff. They were going to start doing, they really wanted to start figuring out college, like how they were getting played on college radio and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Cause they were starting to do more records. And, uh, Joe was like, so Joe was like, can you, I mean, I, you know, I sort of knew him and 
he got in touch with me. He's like, you know, could you, could you do us this stuff? And I said, well, I mean, I can, but you know, I mean, I could, I could come down like a day a week and do that shit, but I can't really, I can't get paid for it. And he was like, he's like, yeah, you know, it's, you know, okay. <laughs> he's going like, nobody, me anyway. So yeah. it's like, I said like, yeah, but I mean, you know, I, I could come down and do that. So every week, all right. It's like every Tuesday I'd, you know, I'd buy a big bag of bagels, you know, some cream cheese and go down there and, you know, just give those guys some food to eat. And then, <laughs> you know, just work on going through all of the, you know, my main thing was to go through all of the like college radio playlists, you know, and, and chart like what was going on with that stuff. And then, you know, who wasn't doing stuff and where, you know, you know, cause people would be writing all the time asking, you know, well, they wanted shit, you know, free shit and whether it was like they were actually doing anything with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sort of doing that. And, you know, it's also just hanging out and, you know, just, you know, just hanging around, you know, and, and you know, going to P.O. Box one with mugger or something like that. Yep. <laughs> you know, or whatever, you know, just do that kind of shit. And it was like, cause it, it, at that point, um, SST was kicked out of their places, you know, like up in Hollywood and stuff. Right. Yeah. They were in that doctor's office for a while. I was a dentist office, whatever the hell it was. And that's when, when Henry came down mm-hmm. at that point. Yep. And so they've gone back to, to, you know, was, it was actually in Huntington, I think wherever, like where Greg's, you know, electronic business had been. Mm, yeah. For and most so, of yeah. So I was just, yeah. Yep. And so I would just be there, you know, just at least, at least one day a week, just sort of doing, you know, just doing paperwork. And, you know, it was also, but also at that same time I had done, cause it was when they were getting sued by uh, unicorn. Yep. And so, Greg, like Joe Pope and I were the, like the professional uh, witnesses for that trial. Oh, you know, Joe, Joe is a distributor and I as somebody who worked in retail about because they were getting at that point, they were getting sued for putting out everything went black, mm-hmm. but without anybody's names on the cover. Right. Yeah. And without black flag. On so it was about whether that was how that was being whether that was being marketed as a black flag record or not, there was, there was that. So I, so Joe and I had to go to court to like testify about that stuff. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, I think it was in, it was downtown. That was in Los Angeles. Yeah. It must have been downtown LA. Yeah. But, uh, so, you know, we just did that and then, you know, it was just like, but it was mostly just hanging, you know, just like do pushing pens around and, you know, trading a lot of tapes with Henry and, you know, I'd try to get like, you know, like I made, I finally got Carducci to, or no, uh, Dukowski to dig up his like, you know, original like worm, like five like worm rehearsal tapes and stuff. Oh yeah. You know, it's just like, but you know, so, so it was like that, you know, and Henry was super, you know, you know, I would like, you know, he was a young guy still. He didn't really know that much about, there was a lot, you know, his, his record, his musical knowledge was deep in certain, in a couple areas, but not very wide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we talk, we talk, talk a lot about, you know, different stuff, stuff they didn't really know about, and, you know, because I was working at Rhino, we could get, you know, I could get records really cheap up there. You know, I'd bring down, you know, bring down a few records for him or, you know, Carducci and, and, uh, at the same time, then I'd be like Andrea Enthal had taken over when, when Melter's Hepcats from Hell got picked off the Pacific station, Andrea Enthal had taken over that time slot and a show called uh, Studio X or something like that, radio, I mean, whatever it was. It was like a Saturday night overnight show. Mm-hmm. Maybe it went from like midnight to 6 a.m. or something like that. And uh, 
I knew her just from, you know, from just being a customer at Rhino. And so whenever she'd, she'd go out, out of town, I would cover her slot. And I would generally try to get Carducci to come with me. And uh, so I'd go down and pick him up and, you know, we'd swap. I'd do an hour, then he'd do an hour, I'd do an hour. And he would refuse to, like, back announce anything. <laughs> just play music. <laughs> yeah. He would, if people called up, he would tell them what it was. Right, yeah. But he would not talk on the radio. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was really, it was really fun. Yeah. You know, and then this black minister would come in the morning, you know, and we'd be sure to be playing something really, like, obnoxious as he came in. <laughs> When you were uh, when you were testifying at this unicorn trial, was it like Ginn and Dukowski? You know, um, they, I believe they represented themselves. As I recall, yeah. yeah. I mean, my, it, you know, it wasn't. It, I think that they had a lawyer mm. at this point. It's my memory of it, anyway. And mm-hmm. it was one of those things that's, you know, I remember get having to, you know, get get a like, you know, coat and tie and stuff like that, and going up, but it wasn't particularly long and uh you know it's just one of those you know weird that was funny to see those guys kind of dressed up yep (laughs) (laughs) but that's i mean my my memories my specific memories of the day are not really like very you know it was not it it didn't take very long it It, was not a uh, there there was not like a perry mason moment or anything like that (laughs) (laughs) it was not bad it's just you know like most legal stuff it's just you know a blah 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 yep. grind, you know. Yep. Yep. Uh, very few highlights. Do you recall the first time you encountered Chris and and or the Flesh Eaters? I think that I met. I'm pretty sure I met Chris in New York when he came back with X. The first time that they played, when they played with the Contortions at Max, they opened for the Contortions at Max's. Oh wow! Um, and I think all those guys came. They came by the New York Rocker office, and I'm pretty sure I met him then. And he he gave me, I think he gave me the, the maybe the single was out, but it was like, you know, I just really like. I mean, I super like the band. I mean, I I there I put, you know, when uh, the first album came out, it was like my my top record. And then when I when I went out to L.A., like one of the first things I did was I went to Slash the label mm-hmm. to see about getting a job. And so they gave me like a you know, kind of a part-time job doing an in-house newsletter. Okay. And Chris had an office there. Right. Yeah. For Ruby, you know, which Ruby was just getting started. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I met him and, you know, we were like, Oh yeah, you know, we, you know, we yeah, I met before whatever. And, and, uh, it's when the, the minute to pray lineup was still going. Okay. Yeah. And so then actually the first, first show my wife and I went to, once we moved out there, it was a fall, Flesh Eaters Blurt show. Oh, wow. At, uh, Myron's Ballroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because we'd seen Blurt on the East Coast. That was the last show we saw on the East Coast before we left. And then it was the first <laughs> show we saw. We got to the West Coast. It was still Blurt was still on the same tour because Ruby had actually done, was doing, going to do the first Blurt album. Oh, really? You know? They did it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they put it out in the States, hmm. I think. Or maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I can't remember. Yeah. Exactly, but uh, maybe Armageddon. I don't know. Whatever, whoever did it, hmm. but they were they really wanted to do a Blurt record. They really wanted to do a Fall record, also, like when the the camera stuff was coming out. But uh, anyway, so so I would see Chris then, and it was just you know we just started hanging around, and uh, you know Lily and I were both like great. I mean, really like nuts for the band. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would go out. We would go out and see a, 
well, we would go out quite a bit, like, you know, usually four or five times a week to see shows. Like the LA. I imagine Chris's lyrics like appealed to your poetic sensibilities. Oh maybe? yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, you know, I mean the, the, you know, especially, I mean, on the first, the first album, you can't really hear the stuff that much. I mean, it's so like gar, I mean, it's, it's more germsy in a way in terms of like, there's very little, uh, Annunciation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what Melter called blabbermouth, lockjaw of the soul. Yeah, and uh, you know, it was that. But I mean, when the the second album, when we I heard that, I was just like, I was floored. I mean, I was just floored. I mean, the lyrics were so like such a weird, like great garble of stuff. So yeah, so you know, I mean, the thing is, we just uh, we just hit it off. We were into a bunch of the same stuff at that particular time. There weren't like. There weren't too many people I knew who were really like hardcore, like, you know, noir fiction mm-hmm. buffs, you know, or like, and Chris knew so much about movies. Um, you know, it's, it was just, he was, you know, it's just fun. You know, we'd go out to, go out to lunch, just hang out. Yeah. Then he started ha- coming to our house. Ha- we started hanging out at my house all the time. And uh, we lived with my mother-in-law down in Santa Monica. She had a, like a three bedroom bungalow between Idaho and Montana on 17th street. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but she was always on the road, you know, doing consulting work. And so, but you know, she'd come to, she would do these, when she was around, she'd do these big dinners on Sunday night. We just didn't, you know, Chris would come down, we'd invite all, you know, all the musicians we knew mm-hmm. down and eat and just hang out and shoot the, shoot the crap and whatever. And, and, you know, then just go out to shows. So we were running in, you know, you'd run into the same, it's like anywhere, really, if you go out a lot, you run into the same people yep. all the time at shows that are by people, you know, bands that you like. And, you know, just doing that, you just like, you recognize all these people. So then when you run into them somewhere else, and I'd be, you know, people would come into the store also. So it was like, you know, it's really, it was pretty easy to like, you know, have like all, after living there for not too long, have a hundred people who you at least recognize and recognize you that you're like nod to. And then you, you, know, you talk with them and you know you hang out, you bump cigarettes, you know, whatever. It's like, yep. uh, you know, sort of an affinity group. So we sort of, you know, that just, uh, Chris is a, you know, he was, he knew everybody out there. Yeah. And so, you know, the more we hung out with him, the more, you know, we'd meet other people through him and, you know, it was just like, it was cool. And he spent a lot, we just, we just spent a lot of time together hanging out. We'd go, go out to the, go out to 29 Palms you know, rent rooms at the 29 Palms Motel out there and just, like, cruise around in Joshua Tree. And, you know, yeah. just all sorts of stuff. We'd go, you know, go to a lot of shows, you know, because he, he was doing a lot of scouting for, you know, Slash and Ruby at that time. Right, yeah. You know, trying to find some other bands and stuff like that. And so it was like he was out all the time. We were out all the time. Just like, you know, you'd meet up with people, shoot pool, whatever. You've called a minute to pray a second to die. Like, many times I've I've seen you refer to it as, like, the best, rock record ever recorded yeah 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 I, and i really think it is i mean i'm very fond of that particular era of i mean the way that that la a lot of la like guys transition sort of out of punk mm-hmm. yep. the, the, the things that they they took i mean and the, th- the fact that i got to see them all live all the time has a lot to do with it. i think if i'd been in london you know they're there, uh, there probably would have been different, you know? Yeah. Or even in, if I was mostly in New York, I think it would have been different. But just getting to see 
you know, bands like the Flesh Eaters and the Gun Club, like every time they played, you know, or bands like, you know, the Minutemen, we've seen the Minutemen a hundred times, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, every year you would go, there were bands who go to every show, you know, the urinals, or Savage, or, you know, in the Africa Corps, or, you know, Monitor, or, you know, any LAFMF stuff, and, you know, whatever, it was, it was, there was just so much good music going on in LA at that period, both from like the punk stuff, the experimental stuff, the like Paisley underground stuff, you know, it was like, it was, a, uh, and there were a lot of clubs that were doing, you know, if not shows every night, like pretty regularly. And then, you know, bands would, other bands would come to town and hang out like, you know, when the lipstick killers came and they hung, you know, they were there for months, you know, Chris and I would go see, we saw them every time they played. You know, in fact, I paid for their last show to happen. Oh, wow. You know, they changed their name. They changed their name in the Chris tribute to Luke Guru for their very last show. <laughs> I think it was L. Olsen, Uriel, one of those. But, uh, you know, there were a lot of really good bands. And, you know, it was a great, you know, it was kind of a really good scene. And it was not, you know, I mean, the big hardcore shows were kind of a drag, and so most people avoided those. Right, yeah. Although, you know, sometimes you, sometimes you go to them, but, like, to go down to, like, a big multi-band show at, like, the Cuckoo's Nest or, like, you know, the Waters Place and Redondo, it's just, like, those, once bands like, uh, you know, Circle One came around yep. and stuff, a lot of that, a lot of the atmosphere was just, like, so, like, jocked out. Mm-hmm. It was not very attractive uh, at least in bigger places you could stay away from the pit and but you know in some of the smaller places it was not quite so easy and people really go there to, if not to fight just to like you know really bruise get bruised up mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was not really my bag so much. Yeah. i mean when we used to go i mean i used to i remember once we were at a we used to go out to this there was a place in uh uh sun valley california called uh um, it had been a big, it was a, it was a bowling alley, like a for Polish bowling alley or something like that during the day. And they do shows there at night and, uh, you know, on the weekends they do these big punk shows. And I can remember one time there was this, uh, I think it was, it was like 45 graves headline or something like that. And these kids, I mean, these kids like would just be such a pain in the ass and they'd be breaking in and getting in all this stuff. And, you know, people would, you know, people would like try to like sort of like really like not fight with my wife, but like really like bump into her a lot. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so I would just have to get in these, like, you know, just like knock these guys across the room and stuff like that. <laughs> and it was just like, we got to stop going to these, like, you know, big, I got into this fight with, with, with uh, Eugene, mm-hmm. the guy who Nig Heist was named after. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Eugene, you know, Eugene stuff really starts like smashing my like wife around with the stuff. I'm just like, fuck you, man. And I, and I sort of put my arm around him and just like really kicked him as like far as I could kick him with the bottom of my foot. And it was, I was just like, man, we, you know, we, we need to start going to smaller shows instead of these like right. big shows. Yeah. It's, it's just too stupid, you know, but you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, it was a, you know, it was, it was a, it was a super interesting time. I thought for bands, right mm-hmm. there. a lot of good records coming out. <laughs> it's not, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but um, so many lesser like zines, etc., have been gathered into full books or you know omnibus editions or whatever you want to call them. Any chance right. of that happening with forced exposure? Uh, 
yeah, you know, we've, we've, uh, Jimmy and I have talked about it many times over the years. I don't know what, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it could still happen. It was like we were planning it for a long time and I was sort of working on reformatting stuff because, um, you know, uh, the, after the, starting with seven and eight, the material was at least done on computers. So there was, there was a, it had a digital, you know, footprint. Uh, that was potentially retrievable, though, through, like, so many different... I mean, this, you know, the word processing stuff in 85, you know, 84 is, uh, you know, pretty different, you know. I mean, the first computer, uh, you know, whatever. Anyway, well, we've talked about it. Nothing has ever really come of it. I worked on it for a long time. And, you know, uh, I think a bunch of the people who did some of the writing for it are not necessarily, like, that into it anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> what they I, wrote i yeah i guess so, that might be a factor it, it, yep yeah it becomes yeah. it becomes sort of problematic and then you do a you know i mean because to me the thing that i really wanted to do was if we were going to do it was unabridged right you know? yeah yeah not you know like when you start picking and choosing stuff mm-hmm. and it's a lot of stuff because there's we always left a lot of stuff out of every issue there was a whole other issue that was basically finished mm. um plus a bunch of other interviews that we'd done that we'd never, you know, just stuff like that. It's like, you, know, you start wondering. So we started like talking about, okay, well maybe we'd break it up into, we'd do it as a series of books. There'd be one thing that would have interviews or we'd do the first one would be like all the, all the record reviews. Right. Yeah. Which, and then do one that would be like all the interviews, one that would be like all the, you know, like whatever, all the articles, all, you know, like whatever you get into stuff like that. And then, you know, it's, it, but it's, it's, it has never, it has never really gelled. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as, as somebody who's been a professional writer for like almost 50 years and having seen the like, what the, uh, I mean, I make, I make less in pure dollar amounts for a record review in The Wire than I made for a record in New York Rocker. Yeah. Oh, in 1978. Yeah, I, I can believe so, that. Yeah. You know, and like and and like things are a little bit more expensive now than they were then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so, well uh, well how about this? You know, Chris recently released his, you know, this awesome writing for slash book. How about just a, yeah, like yeah. a second volume of your collected reviews and maybe even on Poison Fang books? Yeah, I mean, if somebody, you know, if somebody really wanted to do something, I'd be happy to work with them. But I just, you know, people generally who ask me about that stuff, and they really want me to do a lot of work, you know, I mean, uh, uh, I just haven't, nobody's really, like, <laughs> asked me in the way right. that made me want to really, like, dig into it. I mean, not that I really have anything against it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, I'm still writing reviews. Right, <laughs> yeah. Like, a lot of goddamn reviews. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you know, I mean, I would definitely, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd, have, I'd be up for doing something. But mm-hmm. uh, nobody's uh, nobody's really given me a uh, an offer that, that seemed very realistic. Yeah. So bef- but, yeah. you're kind of like, you know, a well-known record collector before we started recording here we were talking about cataloging records etc right are are you still yeah. do you still buy records i i i have to 
admit that I do still borrow it. <laughs> Even though I really like shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, it's idiotic, but you know, I mean, I like, I mean, the thing is I got into, uh, I, I, the last book I finished, I, which has I'll come out this year sometime is like, uh, Thurston Moore, Metz Gustafson and I put together a book of the 100 best free jazz records right. from 1960 yep. to 19, yep. you know? And I mean, that involved listening to about 5,000 records, <laughs> um, which we all did. I mean, we spent about five years like listening to stuff wow. and then like arguing over lists, right. tearing stuff down. Like, and because I set up the idea, like we can't have more than one record by any artist as a leader. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, so whatever. So it was like we were trying to put some framework on it and it needs to be really like spread across internationally with the Japanese stuff, all the you know, all this shit. So, so, you know, I, I, I got into sort of buying, you know, some records to like hear stuff because Matt's would, <laughs> would come up to these records. It's like, I've never even heard of this record, man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he'd be like, Oh yeah, it's great. It's great. <laughs> you're like, okay. And you'd look on a line and there'd be no information, no recordings from it at all. So you'd have to go, oh, I have to buy that. Yeah. So that would be my, that was my excuse for doing that for a long time. I still DJ, so it's like, you know, oh, okay. when I DJ, yeah. I like to DJ at Goner Fest, so when I, you know, and I like to, you know, I, what I'll do a lot of times is I'll just pick, like, one box, so it'll be, like, you know, bands that be, whose name begins with S-U, <laughs> <laughs> you know, artists who begins with bands with S-U, and then, and then I'll just go through, you know, I'll, like, oh, and then I'll, you know, I, I, and I've lost a lot of records over the year, I had, like, a, I had, like, a major, like, a barn collapse, mm. where I lost, like, I lost about 15,000 records. Wow. Wow. And so, and so I've never really known, I mean, a part of this cataloging stuff is to figure out what records I actually have. There's so many records I've had, maybe I've had them 20 different times in my life, (laughs) but I know I've sold some and you know, whatever. And it's like, Oh Christ, I can't believe I don't have a copy of that anymore, but it's like, yeah, I don't. And it'd be like, it'd be good to have that. And then, you know, you get, you get sucked down into these things. Be like, Oh man, I could really like, there's only one, there's only one like eighties flying nun record. I don't have, you know, I should really like get it. Right. Or, you know, like stupid stuff like that. Yeah. But one, you know. once a collector, so, always I mean, a collector, right? <laughs> I mean, once you're doing it, it's like you're sort of in for a penny in for a pound. I'm, you know, I'm trying to like stay away from really expensive stuff. Yeah. And you know, like a lot of the times when I've, when I've collected stuff, it was the stuff that nobody else wanted. Mm-hmm. So I'd buy it cheap. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, whether it was free jazz in the eighties, you know, or like in the eighties, like Mimeo, like Mimeo poetry scenes and stuff like that. You could buy the stuff. People were, didn't want it. And, uh, now once it becomes, once the internet sort of wrecked all this stuff, yeah, finding like, yeah, yeah. you know, huge. See, I kept on, kept on moving like, uh, categories. It's like in, in 90, my wife and I went down to Australia and New Zealand for a few months. And, uh, I had sent down, like, a friend of mine had a record store in Melbourne. And I was like, well, what are people buying? Because I want, need some money when I'm down there. So I sent him a couple boxes of records. So when I got down there, I had, like, he had, like, he sold me, like, nine or 10,000 bucks or something like that. So I had a lot of cash. And nobody, nobody was into Prague or folk stuff right then. So I was just going through these stores and, like, hauling out, like, boxes <laughs> of, like, really cheap like, Prague records and folk records and stuff like that. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and then you'd ship them back. And so, you know, you could, there, 
there used to be a, there used to be a way to sort of stay one step ahead of that. And right now, I actually think that there are a lot of like really great, like the third third wave garage rock stuff, you know, like Estrus yep. era yep. things and that kind of stuff. Gearhead, like that scene is, you know, the LPs are expensive, but uh, the singles are really cheap mm-hmm, they for are. a lot of those yep. bands. And when yep. you start listening to them, it's like, you know, God, there's some of these. There are some great like really good records yeah. inside these things that you just sort of glossed over at the time because you were getting like, you know, you get like 20 of them in the mail, you know, to review. Yeah. Just like play them. You're like, oh my God, they're like fucking garage wrecks. <laughs> um, yeah. If you're not dealing, I mean, everybody knows high points of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But yep. it's all the like Xerox bands that are always the most interesting, you know? Yeah. It's like the, the people who are imitating people, especially if it's like second or third generation Xeroxing. And it's like they come up with some really like interesting takes on things that they don't even really know what they're imitating. They don't know what they're copying because it's been it's already like four generations down. Right. <laughs> and so they they bring a very they bring totally different preconceptions to the idea of what it is they're doing and end up doing some very like estimably good. Uh, music mm-hmm. in the process that's more original than it should be inside this genre because they don't understand it. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so you know, there's lots. I mean, I like. I mean, to me, like, I really like cheap records. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have, you know, I've paid you know a couple thousand bucks for a record, but I it's, to me that's really like painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really painful. <laughs> I didn't know there was um, any you know, such thing as cheap records anymore. Oh, there are. Yeah, Do- there's still there's. <laughs> Still, like, there's still a lot of like good under two dollar singles. Yeah. Um, in terms of albums, not so much. Um, the CD era, like, just changed the economics of LPs a lot. Mm-hmm. This book is it coming out on Thurston's imprint? Yeah, yeah, it'll be. A, and I'm trying to. I'm. I. I've been hoping that we could get so because that'll be English then. It'll be hardcover, and it'll be limited. Um, so I was hoping maybe I get to Capo or somebody like that to do mm. an American edition. Right, right, yeah. And then with the idea at the same time, like Abrams has let the No Wave book go out of print and not long enough now that I think rights have reverted. Mm. So we were thinking of doing an updated version of that, maybe too. But oh, you know, he's cool. got a lot of he's got a lot of stuff going on, so I'm not exactly you know, sure where all these things go. Right. right. I mean I can he and I can talk about one thing, but then actually to actually get it done. I mean, we've been talking about this free jazz, but we talked about the No Wave book for like fifteen years before we finally did it. <laughs> yeah, we talked about the, the free jazz book for about fifteen years before we did it. So. Right, you know, it's just some of these projects take a while. Yeah. to actually get going. But now, as we as we're into our golden years, I'd like to think that there are fewer distractions. Yeah, where can our listeners read your your reviews these days? Oh, you know, I mean, most of the, a lot of the stuff that I do is in the wire. Yeah. Uh, I do. I've, I've had a column in the wire for like 25 years, mm-hmm. you know, doing just mostly short format reviews of, uh, you know, seven inches and cassettes mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do, I do occasional stuff for other things, but I write a lot of, you know, I write all the one sheets for feeding tubes. You know, we do at least, a re- he does, you know, Ted does at least a release a week. Mm, wow. Yeah. There's that stuff. I just do, you know, I do other, you know, I do a lot of 
promotional writing. That's the only people who pay these days. Like I just wrote a thing for Matadors doing some butthole surfer. You know, I do all the one sheets for like any mascus or dinosaur project. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, in terms of reviews, you know, I try to tweet about a record a day mm-hmm. on uh, on X, but I I would never direct anybody to there because it's so such yeah. an evil place. <laughs> um, yeah, I noticed you know. you're you're on Blue Sky now. I am, but yeah. it's like I, my my computer won't load the page anymore. I can't mm. figure out why. Yeah. So uh, I'm, hopefully I'll get that figured out, sorted out at some point. But, uh, you know, I mean, you know, I, people are trying to get me to revive the Bull Tongue Journal that we were doing. Mm-hmm. But it's just, you know, I was losing a thousand bucks every issue and I just sort of ran out of money. Right. What but, about liner notes? Are you Have you been getting asked to do liner notes? Yeah, I mean, I just do, I do some. I mean, the thing is, like, labels have stopped wanting to pay for anything. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's kind of, people will ask, but then, you know, it's just, if they don't want to give me anything for it, which a lot of people, you know, like small labels really, I mean, I know they don't have any money and stuff, but it's like, I mean, I've done, a, I've done a lot of liner notes, you know, I mean, I like doing them, but you know, I mean, and I was, uh, you know, I hope I'm wondering, you know, maybe I was doing a lot of, I did a bunch of stuff for the fourth exposure site. They like have a, I mean, there's, I mean, in there, I've done a bunch of like essay, mostly essays on bands and right, stuff, yeah. drug records, but in terms of a regular, regular place to write for anymore, there just aren't, uh, there aren't really many around. Yeah, um, yeah that's true. You know, it's the online stuff less inclined to do some of that yeah some other things right on byron thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today i really appreciate it yeah sure yeah no problem awesome well i'm gonna start by saying great idea brant to collect all of byron's writings together in a a book a tome a tome perhaps yeah and i'm sure that there are lots of other people out there that would feel the same way yeah, well, there is one, Ryan, I think. Excuse me. Just reached over and grabbed it here. I think I referenced it. You may have seen it. It's, it's this one. Oh, yeah, it's Say the one again. on, yeah. on uh, Loire de Cravin. Forward by Mike Watt. Yeah. This is this is all early writing, 78 to 83. Yeah. Yeah. Reviews of uh, Husker du, um, I think, uh, in a free land. Or no, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Uh, some Minutemen stuff, De- the Devo stuff I talked about. It's a it's a good book, but you know that's just like a snippet. Oh yeah, no, it's when I look on you know some of the other writers that I have books on, I know that that that's like three quarters of a centimeter thick. That book, yeah, that ain't nothing when it comes to Byron. Yeah. But it's it is truly just such an honor, and he's so humble, and uh, I can tell that you know there was potential to go down dozens and dozens of artist centric rabbit holes very hard not to when you're talking with him for sure yeah he uh he mentions richard Meltzer, famed rock critic and frequent boc lyricist among other things um he's cited Meltzer as an inspiration many times over the years as has mike watt uh, who collaborated with Meltzer on his Spielgusher album and and possibly would have all the way back to the Minutemen yep. days were it not for D. Boone's unfortunate passing. 
I can just imagine Byron Coley and Mike Watt bonding over their admiration for Richard Meltzer. Mm, like totally. I would love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. A few of the things he mentioned that I picked out and followed up on, uh, I had to check out hot poop. This, uh, oh, God. <laughs> this band he mentions. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? Yeah. Uh, they were from Isla Vista, California. They were all the university of Santa Barbara students. You know, obviously I had to check them out, especially after seeing the album cover. One of the members is like taking a shit on a plate. Then another one is handing uh, the an, a plate of shit to the rest of the band who are slumped over in this like ramshackle lean-to or something. And they're uh, injecting the poop, as far as I can tell, with syringes. And one of them's, uh. one of them's already overdosed. Um, the album is called Hot, Hot Poop Does Their Own Stuff. <laughs> You had to, so wait a second, we're coming, we're coming out of the Byron Coley interview and that's the first thing to mention. (laughs) He mentioned it, not me. (laughs) Uh, so this was, uh, Hot Poop Does Their Own Stuff was self-released in 1971 on Hot Poop Productions (laughs) (laughs) in a run of, um, a small run, sorry. Um, it goes for about $500, um. Uh, like a, so, a, so you're sa- you're saving up, are you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, unfortunately, Ryan, it's been reissued a few times. In- <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this is this is Brant the Trailblazer talking about this record now, yeah. of course. Including last year on Long Beach label Toxic Toast, it's kind of uh, '60s rock put through a Zappa mother's filter. Uh, it's also streaming, it's on YouTube, so check out Hot Poop, if you dare. <laughs> <laughs> or at the very least, co- you know, check out the cover art. Okay, Ryan, he mentions Johnny Dromit, uh, a.k.a. John Thompson. He's an interesting guy. Uh, he did a shitload of album album art. He worked directly for Pear Ubu as their long-running art guy. Uh, but also lots with the Pagans and others, some twin-tone bands. Um, he ran a few labels, Treehouse Records out of Minneapolis, releases from, uh, Cows, Bastards, I've talked about their killer album, Monticello before, Pagans, uh, Tom Herber's band, Bad Trip, remember? Oh, I remember. Yeah. Um, Drome was his short-lived, uh, late 70s punk label based out of Cleveland, Pagans, Dead End America, 7-inch, Street Where Nobody Lives, What's This Shit Called, Love, single. In 1978, um, he was also apparently art director art director for Hustler magazine for a spell. Uh, when I was digging around, I found this podcast. Looks like um, YouTube only, which is a bit annoying. It's called Ubu Dub. It's a pair Ubu podcast. Looks like David Thomas has been on it a few times, and there's also a two part interview interview with this guy Johnny Dromit. So I'll be checking mm. that out asap. I didn't have time to check it out before we we did this. Okay. Uh, blurt reference, Ryan, we have a blurt reference from Byron Coley. No surprise Mm -hmm. there. Absolutely killer British art rock. We've talked about them before. I did not know their 1981 debut though was, uh, which is called in Berlin, a live album recorded in Berlin, as the title suggests was released on Ruby in the U S I didn't know that. Yeah. Neither did I. Yeah. Um, 
check out Blurt if you want some insane, skronken, avant-garde jazz punk. I do. Yeah. I just can't wait to get my hands on Byron Thurston and Matt Gustafson's uh, free jazz book. Oh. Hopefully now that Thurston's memoir is, is done, they can focus on that. That's going to be a mind blow for sure. Yeah. And it's probably going to like just send us down a year of rabbit holes. It's going to break both our wallets. Let's be yeah. honest. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Uh, he mentions Estrus, which is cool. Uh, particularly the singles. Seems like uh, good a time as any to mention I read the Estrus book over the holidays. Have you read it, Ryan? Oh yeah, yeah. done. It's just an amazing achievement, this book. I loved it so much. It's just a beautiful book. Totally took me back to that era, uh, which you and I were just fully immersed in at the time. For sure, and, for sure. And uh, I just can't recommend it enough. Also, the discography in the back. You forget how many singles were getting cranked out back then. It's wild to think about. Like, I bought so many singles in the 90s. I know you still buy a ton. Um, I I really don't. I wonder if they'll ever come back like that. Yeah, I don't know. It was just great to see all those bands and remind myself, you know what? I got I to gotta check those bands out again. It's been a long time since I've listened to a lot of those bands. Great to see some Canadian content yeah. in the Estrus book too. Always love that. Von Zippers, Huevos Rancheros, Shadowy Men. Love that. Yep. Yeah, that was one of the two books that I read. I read the No Means No book and that one, and that was like the perfect holiday break. Yeah, I'm reading the No Means No book right now. Oof, yeah. that's good. Yeah, Rob's article on going to see DOA. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, um... There's so much we didn't get to in the interview. Uh, Byron's been in so many documentaries, written so many essays and liner notes. Uh, mm -hmm. He wrote a biography on Chuck Norris in like 1986. Of course. He, yep. He's got a poetry book, Defense Against uh, Squares, a collection of early writing that I mentioned, C'est La Guerre. Now that book too, uh, don't forget, it's on that imprint. Um, what is it? Is it... Uh... Loire de Cravant. Yeah, there's also yep. there's also a, a Mike Watt book on that same imprint as well. Don't yeah, forget. Yep. You can still find some of he and Thurston's bull tongue reviews on Arthur.com. Um, he later edited uh, the bull tongue review into a quarterly physical release um, with various writers uh, and of course Byron. He was also involved in releasing hundreds of albums across various labels. I don't know his exact involvement in some of these labels. There's his Father Yod label, which he and, and, and Thurston had um, that was connected to Ecstatic Peace. Several artists and releases we've talked about. Dreadful in the Din, Lee Ronaldo, Sonic Youth's 1987 live set, Hold That Tiger, many more. Um, he and John Maloney, uh, a drummer and multi-instrumentalist who's played in a bunch of Ecstatic Peace bands and also Thurston's Chelsea Light Moving, they have a cassette label called Yod tapes. Uh, then there's forced exposure. Uh, so when the magazine stopped publishing, um, in 1993, they maintained and expanded their distribution of music, but they also released several singles and albums, uh, many singles only available to subscribers, including, uh, the Minutemen's Georgeless EP, mm. Roger Miller's, uh, O guitars, etc. Sonic Youth's o Overkill Your Idols and Silver Rocket singles, a Divine Horseman Flesh Eater split, so many more. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's Feeding Tube Records, a label and brick and mortar store in Florence, Massachusetts, with which Byron owns with Ted Lee. They've released hundreds, if not thousands, of experimental, arty, and outright weird albums over the years. Uh, there could and should be an entire episode on Feeding Tube. The output is mind-blowing. Ted Lee has many releases on the label, including some with Byron involved. Uh, check out the collaboration as seen in your wildest dream on the Feeding Tube Bandcamp. It's Byron spewing some poetry, spoken word over some ambient noise. Uh, many of uh, his his poems seem to be taken from reviews that he's written. Uh, there's tracks about the fall, uh, the germs, Alex Chilton, Soft Boys, etc. Uh, you can easily kill a few hours tooling around the the Feeding Tube Bandcamp. There's just so much to check out. Uh, there's a release with Massachusetts band uh, Sunburned Hand of the Man recorded live at the original Feeding Tube location in Northampton uh, where they back up Byron as he reads poems written by Sun Ra. Uh, he has a hilarious spoken word album called Dating Tips for Touring Bands. <laughs> <laughs> and Trinary System. Yeah. Trinary System on Feeding Tube, hey? Yep, for sure. Yeah, there's just so much with Byron, man. Okay, let's get into this Flesh Eaters album, Ryan. History Lesson, Part 2. Okay, so as we talked about already, Ryan, Byron has written extensively about the Flesh Eaters, so I'm going to read some stuff uh, that Byron has written about Chris and the Flesh Eaters as we kind of go along here. Um, Here he is in the preface to Chris's collection of writing and lyrics called A Minute to Pray, A Second to Die. Byron says, to my mind, the lyrics Chris wrote for the Flesh Eaters especially are as blinding a display of raw, universe-gobbling intelligence as have ever been penned. Mm. His long lines are crammed with images, emotions, narrative twists, and internal rhythms that bleed all over the page. Reading them, it's sometimes impossible to unravel how they might be delivered as vocals, but Chris's voice was infinitely mutable as well, yowling, Chittering, bulldozing, glottal and textural stops as though they were traffic cones. In the village voice, Richard Meltzer described it as blabbermouth lockjaw of the soul. Who could argue with that? Uh, Byron wrote the preface to Chris's book that came out last year. We've talked about it before, writing for Slash, 1977 to 1981, The Know-It-All Years, which is a collection of Chris's uh, record, gig, and film reviews from Slash magazine. Byron says, his writing here lays the groundwork for the amazing lyrics, film books, noir fiction, poetry, screenplays, and other words that have flowed from him unfiltered, unabated ever since. Um, Chris's film books are expensive and hard to find, at least up here in Canada. Yeah. Um, Books like Outlaw Masters of Japanese Film and Gun and Sword, an encyclopedia of Japanese gangster films, 1955 to 1980. Uh, but I think I saw he's uh, currently working on a new film book, so uh, I'll be sure to to snatch that up uh, as soon as I can. These things definitely, you know, sell out. Uh, I've managed to source several of his nonfiction books, like uh, Mother's Worry, No Evil Star, and Dragon Wheel Splendor, and they're so good. Mm. Chris's books. Uh, as mentioned, Byron was a writer and underground editor at Spin, which for some of us in isolated small town Canada was truly a lifeline in the in the late '80s and '90s. Like I bought Spin re- religiously back then, and it was it was cool. 
It was it was about as alternative as you could get or underground as you could get. Yeah. Often, like it was it was it it was the most you could get that was left of center, left of the dial. Sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Anyways, I've had this spin alternative record guide since since it came out in 1995. I haven't picked it up off the shelf in probably 20 plus years. Uh, but there's actually a lot of SST stuff in there. Um, I flipped over to the flesh eater section for some Byron Coley action. Oh, nice. Yep. Um, he, he goes, the flesh eaters were a revolving door through which many of the scene's best players passed. The band was merely the venue for yowling, stuttering declamations on the nature of Chris's obsessions, Catholic martyrdom, noir fiction, hot rod demons on a winding road to hell, large busted white trash mamas and horror film minutia. The only singers who've ever matched the intensity of Chris D on a good night were the germs, Darby crash and birthday party era, Nick cave. No one else comes close. Wow. Okay. So I'll be peppering in more of Byron's writing as we go through this comp, not going to go too deep into the parent albums or the players. We actually did that quite extensively on episode 94. Uh, and, uh, this comp came out in 1990 on CD cassette and LP in both black and yellow vinyl, 12 tracks, um, three each from the four albums. And, uh, and there's a bonus track as well, which we'll get into. Uh, it, and it's also streaming, streaming for listeners who, uh, who don't own it. So they can, uh, they can listen there and follow along. Track one side one, my life to live lyrics and music by Chris music by Chris wall, Don Kirk and Robin Jameson rest in peace. Uh, this is taken from the third album, 1982's forever came today, originally on Ruby, uh, later on slash in Italy reissued in 2016 on superior viaduct known liner notes from Byron in that reissue. Uh, but in the spin book, uh, he calls this album a pure blast of high energy stomp, metal, punk, and roots rock. Influences all get consumed in a firestorm of unmatched ferocity. Mm. In, yeah. Chris, in Chris's book, he talks about being in love with someone mid-1981. And uh, several of the songs on that album, including this one, quote, reflect the rarefied intensity of those feelings. And it, it was an unrequited love for many years after... Even more of the songs on our next album, A Hard Road to Follow, were about her. But to this day, we remain just friends. He says, I loved the title of Godard's film, My Life to Live. It embodied my feelings about my fate and my feelings about love perfectly in four words. And I snagged it as the perfect title and chorus refrain for the opening song. So yeah, it also opens Forever, Forever Came Today. Um... He lists it along with Wedding Dice and Drag My Name in the Mud as his three all-time best Flesh Eater songs. Those wow. two, both of those two were on Greatest Hits Destroyed by Fire. Yeah. It's a great trashy dolls-ish mid-tempo number and it is a great opener. Yeah. Yeah, there's others I prefer over this track, but it's still, you know, it's still killer. Uh, great opening blast of raw rock energy. As usual, Chris is the, the star of the show with his trademark passionate vocals. I didn't mean to tell you my life story, but your transparent motives spur me with desire. Track two, Pray Till You Sweat, 
written by Chris D. Taken from 1981's A Minute to Pray, A Second to Die, originally on Ruby, reissued on Slash, later on Superior Viaduct in 2014. In Byron's liner notes on the uh, reissue, he says, 30 plus years after its seedy brilliance was committed to vinyl, it remains a singular album. It is a fantastic, unique collection of musical and aesthetic threads that could never have come together exactly the way they did anywhere except for Los Angeles, California, 1980. This album has mesmerized me since I first heard the test pressing. A Minute to Pray is still, in my opinion, the best rock record ever recorded. There is really nothing else like it. In the spin guide, he gives it a 10 out of 10. Uh, wow. the, the other three, he gives an 8 out of 10. Uh, he says this lineup, Dave Alvin, Bill Bateman, and Steve Berlin of the blasters added to dough and bone break, of course, of X was absolutely incredible sliding between roars, a punk bombast, American swamp roots, underpinnings, and explosive jazzy improvs like no one before or since. In his book, Chris says, the song title and lyric phrase, Pray Till You Sweat, is a direct quote from Walter Houston's blustery preacher in King Vidor's film, Duel in the Sun. Delivered in the scene where Houston tries to purge half-breed Jennifer Jones' lust for rich sociopathic cowboy Gregory Peck. The line, squeeze out your milk on the baby's grave, is from an image in Sergei Einstein's unfinished documentary epic, epic Viva Mexico showing footage of a mourning peasant woman squeezing milk from her breast into her dead child's grave. Ish. Total Chris D just referencing movies and Oh yeah. Yeah. But even the the musicality of the song, the rhythm really sticks out. It gives it a intense sound, an intense feel, like you are actually praying until you sweat when you listen and the lyrics just add to that. It's an intense song weird yeah and speaking of asterisk records i'm sure i said this on destroyed by fire um but um some of this really makes me think of asterisk bands like the makers and sugar shack um the the guitar sound the song structures um this one i love uh, dj bone breaks marimba and steve's Mm -hmm. sax on it yeah track three satan stomp written by christy also taken from a minute to pray here's chris again uh from his book Contrary to what popped up on a local LA televangelist cable show at the time where the album cover was displayed uh, with two or three more well-known releases by the likes of Ozzy Osbourne, etc., this album was slash is not, nor was it ever intended to be satanic. The album cover is so cool of the uh, A Minute to Pray, A Second to Die. I love the sound they got on this recording. It's a very live sound. This track was done at a different session to the rest of the album. Everything else was done at Quad Tech. This was recorded live by Michael Harvey at Rhapsody Studios. And you can tell the drums sound amazing. And it sounds like they're they're jamming or improvising to a degree. Uh, Byron talks about how they could really go off live into freeform jamming. Uh, if you listen carefully, you can hear a, a band member calling out the changes in the background. Um, I love Steve's little sax flourishes. Those are a standout for me. And, and Chris kind of does uh, these kind of whispered vocals in the verses, which he doesn't do a, a bunch. It's a cool touch. Um, this is one I can bet they really went places with live, especially yeah. the part at the end. Yeah, for sure. It's got a really unique rhythm again, r- kind of jazzy. And that film noir sax 
yeah. that Steve brings, just awesome. Yep. Uh, the next three tracks are all from the debut album, 1981's No Questions Asked, originally released on Chris and Judith Bell's Upsetter Records, uh, reissued several times on Atavistic, Spittle Records in Italy, and most recently in 2013 on Mono Records. Uh, the version I have is on Upsetter, uh, definitely a reissue, but not sure of its, uh, you know, if it's official, I guess it probably is. Uh, the liner notes by Byron are printed so tiny that I actually had to use a mag- magnifying glass to read them. Um, <laughs> He's talking about how it was recorded over the course of a year by various musicians, not necessarily like a cohesive band project at this point. He says, the whole thing is both riven and held together by Chris's unearthly vocal gush, fusing image, smut, and power into unstoppable cinematic torrents, where syntactic specificity is overwhelmed by sheer disturbed narrative thrust. The lyrics are wonderful, bleeding collages of B-movie dementia, street crime, Mexican Catholicism, and Dionysian punk, spurt poetics. The vocals are powerful cat-scratch patterns of night-ripping fear and huge bursts of post-glottal raunch vomit and cascades of pure and toxic love. Wow. I can see why there's an affinity between Byron and Chris. I know, eh? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That kiss on my cheek and suicide saddle, uh, on the CD, they come across as one track. Yeah. And the the kiss on my cheek is pretty, it's pretty quick little poem. Um, but the suicide saddle, I never really picked it out until this time. Those vocals, um, the doubling of the vocals just makes it even more kind of eerie and more Chris D. Yeah, in, in his book, Chris says a number of the songs on the album, including this one, are all heavily influenced by the cut-up stream of consciousness, free association poetry style, something I had had in common with friends John and Exene. Hmm. Great riff in this song, Joe Ramirez of The Eyes and Black Randy and the Metro Squad on this track. It's a cool, punked-out garage rocker. Okay, the next track is No Questions Asked. Lyrics by Chris D. Music by Stan Ridgway, uh, later a co-founder of Wall of Voodoo and a solo artist who uh, Joe Ramirez actually went on to play with a ton. Um, Here's Chris. The weird Jamaican slash Rastafarian use of the personal pronoun I, something common in reggae lyrics in which I loved solely for the aesthetic sound of it, can be found in this song. This one starts off with a, a sample of a gunfight from some old Western, I'm assuming. Um, these early tracks are cool. Chris hadn't quite figured out his sound yet. Definitely more of a late 70s punk feel, less of the swampy voodoo heard on the later albums. Yeah, for sure. This is another great up-tempo punker tune, though. It's good. Yeah. And then on the LP, we're at the end of side two with the track So Long, written by Chris D. Taken from A Minute to Pray. Um, so now you touch someone's face, your kiss brought up welts in her hand. When all you have is fear in your heart, all you hold dear hides in the shadows. You keep it alive inside your head, soaking up love, blood under a sponge. How can you understand progress? Bloody hands wrapped around your chest. This death embrace won't let you die. What a, what a poet Chris is. This track sounds like a lot of it was likely improvised while Chris kind of did his thing on top. That's the, yeah. that's the impression I got. 
yeah, there's definitely some dissonant guitar playing that could be sound, you know, has a bit of a improvised type of sound. Also, I picked out some claves and tambourine, I think. Nice. Okay, flipping it over. Buried Treasure, lyrics and music by Chris, and then music from Chris Wall, Don Kirk, and Robin Jameson. Uh, this is from the fourth and final studio studio album of the original incarnation of, of the band. And I'm sure we talked about this previously, but in some ways, from my perspective anyways, the only kind of solid lineup of the first run of the band. Um, no Questions Asked is uh, a hodgepodge of players, you know, uh, more of a studio project. A Minute to Pray was that all-star lineup. Um, mm-hmm. And the album was recorded in one night. Um, with every song kind of credited to Chris. Uh, and the, the sole other credit being for John Doe's uh, Cyrano de Berger's back. Uh, plus, as Byron mentions in the liners, uh, they played they only played seven or eight gigs, that lineup. Between that Feb- lineup, yeah, yeah. Between February and July 1981. Forever Came Today and A Hard Road to Follow had the first really consistent lineup of Chris, Robin Jameson on bass, Don Kirk on guitar, Chris Wall on drums, and Jill Jordan on backing vocals. Um, and it's kind of the first time we see full band writing credits for several tracks as well. Mm. A Hard Road to Follow came out in 1983 uh, on Chris and Judas' Upsetter label, LP only, uh, and reissued CD only in 2004, and again 2016 on Atavistic, with liner notes from Byron. Here he says, Although it was not the last album to be issued under the name of the Flesh Eaters, it occupies a unique and special place in the band's pantheon. It was the first to have it the same lineup as its predecessor. The band's fourth corrosive masterpiece in as many years, Hard Road is the best evidence of a band that, ach- that had achieved a still unequaled massiveness of sound. For my money, this particular version of the Flesh Eaters represents the greatest rock band ever. They were it. Their live shows, of which I missed only two or three, were uniformly mind-melting. And while the records they left cannot convey everything that the Flesh Eaters were, they remain amongst the best albums ever. Wow. Yeah. I'm sure we, we've mentioned this, but there was an official live album of this lineup um, issued by Homestead in 1988 during the, the kind of the heyday of the Divine Horseman. Uh, the A-side is the uh, actually the Minute to Pray lineup, and the B-side is this version of the band. Uh, it's a full it's a full-on album. It just has, There's a rip-in version of uh, the Sonics' Cinderella on it. People should check that out if they, they haven't heard it. In Chris's book, he kind of disparages this album. He was not in a great place personally, and the the recording was rushed. Uh, He says, The morbid wallowing in doomed romance is borderline gratuitous. Uh, But he does acknowledge that many cite it as their favorite album by the band, actually. Um, He says, Virtually all of the Hard Road album is obsessively fixated on the then love of my life, who I was singing about on Forever Came Today. (laughs) Hmm, hmm. I, I feel like the Marvin wallowing in doomed romance is kind of what you come for. Yeah, a little bit, right? Yeah. It It is this lineup for the entire B-side of the LP, and then also the bonus track at the end of the CD. So it's the same lineup from here on out on the record. Uh, yeah, anyways, Buried Treasure, the song, total rocker. Uh, Chris just totally going off at, you know, at some points, at others sounding like a man who's just totally broken. Um, and musically, it's just a like a total ripper. 
Yeah, I found the doubled vocals like really fit the song, but it also kind of reminded me of this other obscure Canadian band that put out this wicked album called Ambush. Remember that band? The band Ambush? No, no. Oh, you're talking the Throbbing Hoods? The Throbbing Hoods. Yeah. The doubled vocals, like in the lower register of Chris on this track, kind of reminds me of the Throbbing Hoods a bit. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Just had to get a Throbbing Hoods reference out there. Never hurts to get a Throbbing Hoods reference in there. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Because of you, or as it's written on parent album, Forever Came Today, because of you, every legend dies a quick death. Um, This one is credited solely to Chris for words and music. Uh, about as close as the Flesh Eaters would get to a pop song, uh, almost their take on Motown or something like that. I know Chris was influenced by some, you know, some Motown stuff. Uh, there's some country licks from Don Kirk in this one. Chris does talk about how he was listening to, to tons of X, Cramps, Gun Club, Blasters, Lipstick Killers, etc. while writing this album. The album title itself is actually an homage to the Supreme song of the of the same name. He says in his book he was listening to them heavily during this era and they had plans to cover the song uh, forever came today but uh, he says the transposition of such an ethereal pop soul love song to our style was just not within our grasp hmm. great track though kind of a louie louie chorus section yep. too right yep but so catchy uh, the next one is tightrope on fire music and words by chris music by Walkirk jameson uh, this is the final track on Forever Came Today, uh, and uh, it's also the title of a 2013 novel by Chris. I've read it. It's it's totally awesome. Another of his gritty pulp noir novels in the style of Henry Cruz or Jim Thompson. Let me read you the blurb from the back cover of this book, okay? Please. Okay. Just check this out and tell me you don't want to read this, Ryan. <laughs> Corrupt female sheriff's detective Frankie Powers is treading water in her small desert hometown of Sweet Home, California. Burned out and emotionally numb after losing her husband and child in a mysterious fire 10 years before, her conscience is reawakened when her affair with a Bakersfield narc brings new facts to light. Frankie's mob boss uncle, Jack Richmond, has been kidnapping underage girls for his Vegas prostitution syndicate. He's also been victimizing his own teen daughters, Frankie's twin bad girl cousins, Valerie and Vanessa. Soon, Frankie finds herself single-handedly fighting tooth and nail against not only wicked Uncle Jack, but also his dominatrix wife, Marilyn, and their degenerate hitman, Cal Nero. Can a lone she-wolf survive against the bloodthirsty pack? Nice. Yeah. (laughs) Ay-yay-yay. Yeah. Well, it's a great song too. I just love the guitar intro to this track. Love yeah, it. Yeah. Steve Berlin guesting on sax on this one too. Mm-hmm. Speak with a kiss, a kiss that scalds and hisses. Love it. This track's actually a standout for me. Yeah, yeah. me too. Uh, the next one is I Take What I Want. It's a cover of a song made famous uh, by American soul and R&B duo Sam and Dave, a.k.a. Double Dynamite, a.k.a. The Sultans of Sweat. Obviously, oh. obviously, they're known for the, the song Soul Man, uh, made famous by the Blues Brothers, who copped many of the duo's moves as like an homage. This, the original, appears on um, their 1966 debut, Hold On, I'm Coming, on Stax Atlantic, written by Isaac Hayes, David Porter, and Teeny Hodges. 
Uh, Hazen Porter wrote many hits, including Soul Man. Uh, they were kind of like the house songwriting partnership for Stax. Isaac Hayes, of course, went on to have a huge career as an artist of his, in his own right. David Porter has over seven, 1,700 songs to his credit, Whew. 200 of which were written with Isaac Hayes. Uh, Teeny Hodges was Al Green's lead guitarist uh, and a songwriter of many of his biggest hits, including Take Me to the River. Uh, this song's been covered a ton. Aretha Franklin, Rory Gallagher does just a killer version of it on his album Against the Grain. Um, Chris says in his book, this song is rooted in a much grittier R&B groove based blues rock foundation and thus much easier for us to interpret. He means as opposed to the su- Supreme song Forever Came Today. Mm. Yeah. Uh, those Sam and Dave records, I don't know if you've ever just listened to them as an album start to finish. You listen to those and you go, all like almost every person that goes on some of those like, you know, singing competition shows these days, yeah, they they just can't even touch. Oh, I know. Sam and Dave. Yeah. Listen to their live record and you're like, oh my God, those guys had pipes. Yeah, and, and they're just, just like fucking putting James Brown to shame too with <laughs> Oh. Well, maybe not. It might be a stretch, but you know what I'm saying. Oh, it's just it's just so incredible. Yeah, yeah. they're going for it. This song's a great duet with Jill Jordan. Uh, as always, uh, with Chris, up to and including the, the past few Divine Horseman albums and the Flesh Eaters, I Used to Be Pretty, it's a spot on cover. Like, they're, the, all those albums have so many good cover selections on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fistful of Vodka is the next one from A Hard Road to Follow, credited to the whole band with lyrics by Chris. Uh, Chris in his book infers that this is one of the songs he actually likes from the album. Um, he says it ends ends up succeeding because of its drunken, full-tilt, fuck-the-world bravado. When I wrote the words, I was pissed <laughs> off at everyone, and it shows. But I was also intent on transcending my anger in the lyrics. Um, again, some great backing vocals from Jill Jordan. Um, a preview of what uh, he and Chris and Julie would take to even greater heights in Divine Horseman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The call and response, female, male vocals, it definitely is a preview. Yeah. And as we've seen on almost all of the Chris D related releases on S- SST, the CD and cassette have one extra track. The last track on those versions um, is also the last track actually on a hard road. It's Poison Arrow, credited to the whole band. Lyrics, of course, Chris. He talks in his book about listening to a lot of ACDC and Girl School during the this era. And this track actually has some some DC vibes going for me. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I love I love the vocal though, where he's going, ooh, 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 <laughs> Love it, that. Yeah, it's another standout, actually. It probably should have been on the LP. Yeah. Overall, a cool comp. Not quite as essential as dry, uh, Destroyed by Fire. Not just because of the bonus tracks on that one. I just actually prefer the tracks overall on that one. Byron concurs, by the way. Uh, he gives Destroyed by Fire an 8 out of 10 in the spin book, and this one a 6. I think by the time this came out, I'm just guessing Chris had kind of ditched the stone-by-stone stone concept and uh, gone back to using the name Flesh Eaters, so that might might have had something to do with this coming out like in the first place, just to something to promote to tide people over until the double album Drag Strip Riot came out in 1991, which we'll be getting to later this year. Yeah, reestablish the name. Yeah, I can't wait to get to that, man. I know. The cover art. Uh, cover art and design, of course, by Chris D. Photo by his girlfriend at the time, Juanita Myers. We'll be seeing her in the reacted, uh, reactivated Flesh Eaters. 
uh, classic Chris D motifs, voodoo, religion, El Muerte skulls, a cross candle, a lucha libra, petrified scorpion, various dinosaurs. I guess that's the prehistoric tie-in. Yeah, it looks kind of like an altar almost. And it's different on the LP from the CD yeah. as, as well. The, uh, the CD background behind the altar, if I can call it that, it's kind of like a, a smoky image. But on the LP, it almost looks like it's a mural from a wall because if you look in the four corners of the image, there are like rivets in uh in all four corners almost like this is like an image that is riveted to the wall as a mural these dinosaurs um behind the altar so there's dinosaurs behind the altar on the lp and then it's kind of a smoky background on the cd and then the cd um the back cover or the i guess it's the insert and they've noodled around with a lot of the writing throughout to make it fit or whatever um but the, the, I guess you'd call it like the back cover or tray card in the CD is a unique image, um, not in the LP. Yeah. Just a total, like a bit of a collage of like police chase, hot rods falling off the cliff, some corpse in a gas mask, <laughs> and, and then the most stone cold Chris D image staring at you. I thought maybe that skeleton was like a fighter pilot. Yeah, fighter pilot. That yeah. could be it too. And there's even like this weird in the top right hand corner, like this skull could almost looks like a day of the dead type of skull, but it's like a sun in the sky. Just a, a cool collage that totally fits Chris, the flesh eaters. <laughs> Chris just glowering like the total badass that he is. Yeah. Well, that brow yeah. of his, he, right? It just is so piercing. Yeah. It uh, looks like they, they kind of, it's definitely different photos. The cassette has, is different as well. And they kind of move, move some of the stuff around and they take some stuff out the, in the, in the, uh, on the cassette version, there's a, like a, a red background and there's like a little gold talisman and some sort of what looks like a, a mini Bible mm. that's not on uh, some of the other versions and stuff's move around slightly. The little word, word bubble with the, of the dinosaur. Say yeah. volume two. It's only on the LP for me. Yeah. Not not on the CD. I've got the the yellow vinyl one. It's kind of like a marble yellow vinyl, but it's a cutout again. So this might not have been moving many units when it came out. Who knows? That hand drawn flesh eaters logo, kind of re- reminiscent of the No Means No lo- logo on small parts. Yeah. Good one. Good one. This one is like bones and teeth, though, or maybe it's all teeth and fangs yeah definitely some shark teeth photos of the two main lineups uh the gary leonard pick of the minute to pray lineup and david kaplan of the forever came um hard road lineup jill jordan in her black leather giving chris a run for his money in the badass department yeah well she's holding a rifle yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah thanks to byron coley in the liner notes yeah indeed I feel like I need to get a jean jacket after I'm looking at these flesh eaters records or so, or like a denim shirt with the, the arms torn off. Hey, yeah, man. <laughs> okay. I'm on it. <laughs> what are you laughing at? I don't know. I've got like three of each. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well you can lend me one. 
And I also have like a couple lumberjack jackets with the sleeves written off Joe Ke- ripped off Joe Keithley style, you know? Nice. Yeah. Ballot result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. Well, for me, I'm going to go with Tightrope on Fire. Definitely a fave for me. I I know we uh, we're we're probably leaning heavily towards the B-side on this record, I bet, but that would be my favorite. Yeah, I liked uh, Satan Stomp, Bury Treasure, Tightrope, I Take What I Want, and Poison Arrow. Mm-hmm. Let's do Tightrope on Fire. Yeah. It's a good, it's, it's a great jam. Totally. Hey, Ryan, thanks to Byron and thanks to Chris as well. Oh, of course. Yeah. What an honor to have Byron on. Huge, yeah. huge. Yeah. Hey, Ryan, what's next week? Next week, it's another brand fave. It's SST 265, the Meat Puppets 2LP comp, no strings attached. Can't wait. And that's our show. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.